0: in the West. Whether hiking, biking, or taking a leisurely walk, plan your next outdoor adventure by going to denvergov.org and search Parks
1: and Recreation.
2: need to do something to feel okay to drive, you're not okay to drive.
3: Don't drive buzzed. We're seeing far too many overdose deaths families are being destroyed as a result of it. On the
2: other side uh, of the equation or the other side of this issue, we are seeing
4: more and more violence as well. Many of these high level cases, we are getting ghost guns, we're getting semi-automatic weapons, we're getting assault style rifles uh, on these particular cases. So it speaks to The other uh, aspect of this and the violence that's involved, the violence over uh, drug turf and uh, being able to sell this, this poison that is causing death on our streets.
5: You have things you've been wanting to say, ideas you love and believe in, and just can't keep to yourself any longer. Denver Community Media is a welcoming and supportive environment and is your
6: one-stop location for access to state-of-the-art production resources and the video tools the creative
5: space, everything you need to make your ideas come to life. You have something to say. Let's give it some air. Let's make it happen with Denver Community Media.
7: Independent Audit Committee was established by charter and receives audit reports and
8: other information from the Denver Audit Office. The committee strives to bring greater
9: clarity, transparency, and accountability to Denver's city government and its residents. It is also responsible for commissioning an annual audit of the
7: city's annual comprehensive financial report. This committee is chaired by
10: Auditor Timothy M. O'Brien.
7: like to call the independent audit committee to order for the April 20th, 2023 meeting. Uh, Edie, would you be kind enough to call the roll? Sure.
8: Jack Blumenthal Here. Florine Nath? Here. Leslie Mitchell? Here. Rudy Pion? Here.
11: Charles Scheid? Here. Edward Schultz? Here.
8: Timothy
5: O'Brien?
7: Here. Um, before we get to the next item, um, I want to Recognize the gentleman to my right, Rudy Payan, has decided to um, to resign from the audit committee, despite my <laughs> nagging. And, <laughs> and Rudy, I want to thank you, you know, for all your commitment to the audit committee over the years. I'm trying to think of how many years you and I have been on this audit committee, um, but you know, thank you for what you've done to. You know, provide accountability and oversight to our government to the people of Denver, uh, and most of all, um, I want to thank you for your your friendship. Uh, you know, it, it wouldn't be the same, and it won't be the same uh, without you. So, um, if you have a word or two,
11: yeah, thank you, Tim. And uh, first of all, congratulations on your reelection. I'm so proud, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it has been a thrill. I've. I've served a long time now on the Audit Committee, more than 10 years, and uh, I've enjoyed the experience, and I think that I really believe in the Denver Audit uh, Agency. It's just, it's office, it's just the best, and I think you do need accountability. And I've always said, in God we trust, all others we audit, and I think it's true. (laughs) Uh, And uh, it's just been a pleasure. Tim, Valerie, thank you for your leadership. Uh, it's just—it's uh, been a pleasure. I'm going to miss you, folks. I'm still going to reach out and follow from afar, but I'll always be here.
7: All right. Thank you. Thank you. I'd entertain a motion to officially recognize Rudy for his excellence over the past 10 years. Uh, and we would prepare a certificate accordingly if that's all right with you so thank you so thank you.
12: second third do
7: i hear a fourth <laughs> okay anybody object to that kind of a? <laughs> all right we'll continue then um next item is approval of our march 16th meeting minutes the minutes are in order is there a motion to approve
13: so moved second, second.
7: All in favor, say aye. 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 Thank you. Um, I know we have a little larger crowd than usual this morning, and I trust it's because of the homeless encampments briefing that we have in front of us. And I appreciate everyone's attendance, and, you know, this is an an issue that's important to all of us uh, and is of concern to all of us. I do wanna mention that this is not like a council committee hearing where public comments are welcomed. Uh, We do not take public comments. So uh, appreciate your uh, observing that. And uh, with that, I'm gonna ask Dawn to introduce the audit team. Then I'm gonna ask Evan Dreyer, if you wouldn't mind coming up to the table, to introduce those departments and people that will be participating in the response to the briefing. Evan?
14: I thought you were going to entertain a motion to adjourn. <laughs> None of us were going to object to it. <laughs> also, the airport offered to do this one for us. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Supposed to follow that. <laughs> ready. Ready.
14: Oh, Mission one. Marley. Now we are ready. All
15: right. Well, uh, my name is Don Wiseman. I was the director on the engagement. Um, just a quick uh, few words before we get started. Uh, Enforcing and responding to homeless encampments is complex, involving multiple agencies and that is why this audit is important. It's an opportunity to review the associated activities and expenses and provide some insight and recommendations to assist the city with making improvements on providing those services and outreach, tracking expenses and ensuring equitable treatment of people experiencing homelessness. with that, I'm gonna hand it over to Karis and she's gonna introduce her team and get us started on briefing.
1: Great, thank you Don. Good morning auditor and committee members. My name is Kara Epstein and I was the manager for the Homeless Encampments Audit we're presenting this morning. I'm joined at the table by Sean Wysong, Audit Manager, Isabel Pupa, Lead Auditor, Dan O'Connor, Senior Auditor, and Danielle Edwards, Associate Auditor. This was a large and complicated audit that involved many different agencies And I would like to thank the dedicated staff in the mayor's office, city attorney's office, transportation and infrastructure, housing stability, public health and environment, public safety, police department, fire department, parks and recreation, and Denver Human Services for their help and cooperation during this project. But also for the work that you do every day to address homelessness in the city and to respond to the unauthorized encampments.
7: Karis, let's let... uh Evan, you want to introduce yourself and the people with you?
14: Yeah, I'll introduce myself, and then I'll let members of the team uh, introduce themselves as well. Um, But first, I would like to echo the congratulations to you on your re-election. Well, thank you. You're welcome. My name is Evan Dreyer. I am one of Mayor Hancock's deputy chiefs of staff and have um, served in large part as the coordinator for a lot of the encampment response efforts until uh, the last year when... Um, we hired Matt Wilms to serve as the executive in charge of the encampment response program.
2: And as Evan was saying, my name is Matthew Wilms. I am the unauthorized encampment uh, response program executive. Uh, I was brought on in June of 2022 to help coordinate um, this response.
16: Laura Brzezinski, I serve as our chief housing officer and executive director for the Department of Housing Stability.
8: Good morning, Nicholas Williams, uh, Department of Transportation and Infrastructure Deputy Manager.
16: Good morning, Marley
17: Bordovsky. I'm the Director of Prosecution, Denver City Attorney's Office.
7: Okay, thank you. And I know there are other departments represented here. In the event that there's a question, uh, we might ask them to join us at the table. So. Karis.
1: Beginning on page one of the report, the federal government defines homelessness as a person or family who lacks regular, fixed, and adequate nighttime residence. They may be sheltered and temporarily living in a publicly or privately operated shelter or in another facility such as a hotel. Or they may be unsheltered, living in areas not meant to be lived in such as a car, a park, or an abandoned building. The sheltered status of a person can and does change quickly and often. Every January, the Denver Metro Homeless Initiative, along with other U.S. cities and counties, conducts a point-in-time count, which is an annual unduplicated count of people experiencing homelessness on a single night. The 2022 point-in-time count for Denver was conducted on January 24th and was the most comprehensive count since 2020. As shown in Figure 1 on page 2, 4,794 people experienced homelessness on this night in 2022. Approximate, and of those, approximately 27% were unsheltered. Adults over 25 years of age without children made up approximately 76% of the population, and one in three people p- were experiencing homelessness for their first time. Many reported having additional conditions or barriers, such as a history of domestic violence or chronic medical and mental health conditions. As shown on table one, on page five, there are 10 different agencies responsible for encampment response. These city departments coordinate to enforce city ordinance and comply with a legal settlement, provide outreach and connections to services for people experiencing homelessness, conduct assessments to identify public health, safety, and environmental risks, and clean up areas with encampments and store people's personal property. <clears throat> As outlined on pages four and five, the city has different ordinances for defining and enforcing rules for encampments. City ordinance says that residing or dwelling temporarily in, in place with a shelter on public or private property is prohibited unless the person has the property owner's permission. Ordinance also bans people from knowingly blocking streets or other public passageways in ways that make them impassable and hazardous. The city refers to these obstructions as encumbrances. In city parks, ordinance bans people from camping or residing overnight and from constructing either permanent or temporary structures. The fire department also is authorized by the fire code to inspect land, buildings, structures, and other materials for fire and hazards to protect the public and property. Agencies responsible for enforcement are expected to attempt to gain voluntary compliance and connect people with service providers before using enforcement tools. The Department of Public Health and Environment inspects areas with encampments to determine the conditions present, including whether public health, safety, or environmental emergencies exist that require immediate action. Between January 1, 2022 and June 30th, Public Health and Environment completed 2,223 assessments, including 1,400 of encampments and 711 of recreational vehicles. The city's process to address an encampment starts with outreach, and the outreach teams are sent to help people experiencing homelessness before a cleanup occurs. Page seven of the report outlines different types of teams providing outreach services that focus on building long term, consistent, and trusting relationships with service providers. From January 1, 2022 through June 30th, 2022, these outreach teams went to encampment sites approximately 2,140 times to provide outreach services to people experiencing homelessness. And according to Housing Stability, three of these teams alone had 12,664 encounters with people during the same period. The mayor's office uses information from different city departments to decide when to remove large obstructions and cleanup areas with encampments. A cleanup may be scheduled for many reasons, such such as if it poses a public health hazard or safety risk, it blocks public right-of-way, or it is near sensitive locations such as schools. The city has a contract with Environmental Hazmat Services to dispose of hazardous waste during cleanups and store personal property at a storage facility for people experiencing homelessness. The city is allowed to throw away items that present an immediate risk to the public health and safety, such as used syringes and medical waste. If people cannot take their belongings with them or items are left unattended, the city collects and stores them for at least 60 days, again, as long as they do not present a risk. Staff are required to take care to identify and store things such as wallets, prescription drugs, and personal identification, but are not required to go through backpacks or bags if they pose a health or safety risk. Between January 1st, 2022 and June 30th, the city completed 58 cleanups and canceled seven. As shown beginning on page 9, in August 2016, the city and county of Denver was sued over an alleged practice of how it cleaned an encampment of multiple people experiencing homelessness by immediately seizing and throwing away property found. The plaintiffs, including Raymond Lyle, argued the city violated people's rights by taking away personal property without due process this resulted in a settlement agreement in February 2019 the agreement requires the city to adhere to a number of things related to cleanups personal property communications and training beginning on page 10 we discussed several of the challenges associated with encampment response in summary the affordable housing crisis has made housing and rent unaffordable for many people Additionally, the COVID-19 pandemic resulted in changes to services and increased unauthorized encampments within the city, which led to further health and safety issues. Larger encampments also can make it harder for providers to connect with people. People struggling with substance misuse and the opioid epidemic have complicated encampment response. And city managers said it can be challenging sometimes to convince people to accept help. And the conditions of living on the street are highly stressful which could contribute to or worsen mental health conditions. As shown beginning on page 13, the mayor's office and other city leaders met to discuss strategies to reduce the number of people experiencing unsheltered homelessness. This was in response to public health and safety risks created by unauthorized camping and a desire to ensure health and safety for all people in Denver. The group developed the Denver Unauthorized Encampment Response Program coordinated by the mayor's office and drafted a program management plan to provide a framework to help city agencies coordinate how they enforce city ordinance and address public health and safety risks. We reviewed the draft plan that was in place as of July, 2022. Housing stability also created a new encampment response team in June, 2022 to work with other agencies during cleanups to provide transportation, case management services and housing connections because this team was new and we started the audit we did not include it in our review of citywide encampment response as shown on the highlights page the objective of our audit was to determine the extent the city's current processes for encampment enforcement and providing services are effective compliant with laws and equitable to assess whether the city effectively designed the homeless encampment response program to achieve its mission goals and responsibilities and to evaluate the extent the city is tracking expenses related to encampments and monitoring its contractors. For the scope of the audit, in addition to the compliance and expense tracking documentation and data we reviewed, the city's services, we reviewed the city's services and communications to determine if the city was providing both equitably to people living in encampments, encampment related data to see if it was reliable and could be used by the city to conduct meaningful analyses on program effectiveness and the city's homeless encampment response program and existing processes compared with leading practices and other cities and at this and we uh, sorry we included a review of documentation and data from January 1st 2019 through June 30th 2022 and at this time I would like to open the floor for questions and comments from agencies and committee members
7: any questions at this point? Yes, Leslie? Just,
13: just a well, maybe not a quick question. Um, I understand that the scope of this audit ended June 22. There would have been another point in time study census done in January. Generally, what what are we seeing? What's the differences from 22 to 23? And I, I realize that no one may be prepared for that. Maybe you might be. I'm just sure. curious.
16: I can talk a little bit about the process. So again, I'm Laura Brdzinski with the Department of Housing Stability. Uh, so the annual point in time count is just that, uh, a point in time generally conducted on a day in January each year in coordination with partners all across the country and here with volunteers uh, and part service partners uh, within our Metro Denver Homelessness Initiative that covers the entire region. Um, it generally, after the point in time is conducted on that night in January, there are um, observation counts as well as surveys that are collected uh, right around that point in time count. And It generally takes about six or so months to validate that information, to see all of the numbers and confirm all of the uh, information. So generally for a point in time that's conducted in January, we would usually see the results from that analysis in the summer uh, of that same year. So I would expect a little later this summer to see um, more clear information after that deduplication process and the validity uh, of the survey is finalized for our 2023 count that was conducted in January of this year.
13: So at this point, we don't
16: know. <laughs> we'll <laughs> too know later this year. It's too early. A few more
13: months. Okay, thank
16: you. you
7: wouldn't, would you have a preliminary number?
16: Uh, they do a lot of work to validate those okay. results. So when yeah. they come out in the summer, those are the results that are available. Thank
1: you. Thank
7: you. Sure. Let's continue.
1: All right, thank you. And now Sean will present the first part of finding one, which has two subfindings.
4: Thank you, Cars. On page fourteen of the audit report, finding one states the city lacks sufficient procedures and reliable data to ensure people experiencing homelessness who live in unauthorized encampments are treated equitably and lawfully. This finding contains two sub-findings related to Lyle settlement compliance and equitable access to services for people experiencing homelessness. Sub-finding one, beginning on page 14, states the city is mostly but not fully compliant with the Lyle settlement. First, we found the city complied with several aspects of the settlement and the unauthorized camping ordinance. Specifically, we found all three large-scale encampment cleanups we reviewed complied with settlement requirements against throwing away uncontaminated personal property and property storage procedures. All 15 body-worn camera videos of unauthorized camping enforcement we we reviewed complied with the ordinance's requirements to provide a verbal warning, determine if the person needs medical assistance or homeless services, and attempt to obtain needed assistance. All five notice postings we reviewed complied with settlement requirements for notices to be provided in advance of cleanups and to include information on how and where personal property can be picked up. As noted in the report, we cannot speak to the city's overall compliance with the settlement or ordinance because we were not able to review a representative sample of each event, but we can say we did not identify any noncompliance with the instances reviewed. However, we also found the city did not always comply with settlement requirements for property storage, property disposal, or employee training. Specifically, we found that 2% of 1,069 instances of stored personal property was thrown away before the 60-day storage requirement in the settlement. We also found the dates when staff moved or discarded property were not consistently tracked. Specifically, 53% of those 1,069 instances of property stored were missing a date for when the property was moved to long-term storage, and 4% did not have a date for when the property was thrown away. This means neither the city nor Environmental Hazmat Services know for sure that property was held the required amount of time. Additionally, property storage data is missing information on stored property kept by Parks and Recreation, some property identified on Environmental Hazmat Services inventory logs, and property we observed being stored in body-worn camera footage. These issues occurred because neither Transportation Infrastructure nor Environmental Hazmat Services has documented policies and procedures for property storage, disposal, or monitoring property storage data. Staff from both shared inconsistent understandings of which is responsible for disposing of personal property. We also found that Transportation Infrastructure and Environmental Hazmat Services staff threw away and stored unattended personal property at one of two reviewed daily trash cleanups without providing the settlement required 48-hour notice. While police officers did ask people living nearby if the owner of an unattended tent was present, no written 48-hour notice was seen posted in the camera footage. Transportation infrastructure does not provide advanced notice of its daily trash cleanups and does not have policies and procedures for unattended personal property during daily cleanups. City Attorney's Office staff said there are times uh, notices are posted and then removed and staff could have posted the notice even though it was not shown in the video. We also found the city's property storage webpage, used to notify the public when unattended personal property has been removed and stored by the city, did not contain all settlement required information. Specifically, the webpage did not include a phone number for people to call with questions. By comparison, both the city's 48 hour and seven day large encampment cleanup notices inform people to call Denver 311 with questions on property storage and retrieval. As a result, people experiencing homelessness may not know who to call about stored personal property. Table 2 on page 21 of the report shows that Denver 311 received only 63 calls inquiring about stored personal property between January 1, 2019, and June 30, 2022. The webpage also listed the wrong address for the storage facility as of July 2022. Rather than the 1449 Galapago Street address for the city's property storage facility, the Department of Housing Stability mistakenly listed the address of a local nonprofit's separate storage facility. The mayor's office said the incorrect address was displayed from June to August 2022 before being corrected. While the uh, city and county of Denver was Yep. (laughs) Lastly, we found one employee in the Department of Transportation Infrastructure did not take settlement required homeless sensitivity training in 2021 because the department is not monitoring its training records to verify staff compliance. Additionally, neither Transportation Infrastructure nor the Department of Parks and Recreation were able to provide attendance records to show employees had taken other required trainings, such as those related to hazardous materials or trauma. While the city and county of Denver was generally compliant with the Lyle Settlement, these instances of non-compliance expose the city to potential future liabilities and lawsuits. Additionally, people experiencing homelessness may not be able to retrieve their belongings if they're thrown away before the 60-day minimum storage requirement. And they may not have the information they need to know uh, how to retrieve their belongings if the city's website does not contain a phone number to call for information. Therefore, we make the following nine recommendations beginning on page 23 of the report. I will read all recommendations before pausing for comments and questions. In recommendation 1.1, we recommend the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure should establish and document roles and responsibilities for evaluating and disposing of property collected and stored in the city storage facility. Recommendation 1.2 says transportation infrastructure should work with its contractor to develop policies and procedures for ensuring compliance with the Lyle settlement regarding property storage and disposal. The department has agreed with these recommendations with an expected implementation date of June 30th, 2023. Recommendations 1.3 and 1.4 say transportation and infrastructure should work with its contractor to develop policies and procedures for inputting, tracking, and monitoring property storage data and should periodically monitor this data. The department has agreed with these recommendations with an expected implementation date of June 30, 2023. Recommendation 1.5 from page 24 of the report says transportation and infrastructure should develop policies and procedures to provide the required 48 hours notice for unattended personal property found at its regular citywide cleanups in compliance with the Lyle Settlement. The department has agreed with this recommendation with an expected implementation date of June 30th, 2023. Recommendations 1.6 and 1.7 state the Denver Unauthorized Encampment Response Program should work with all agencies responsible for homeless encampment cleanup and response to develop and document policies and procedures for monitoring and ensuring staff complete required trainings, including those required by the Lyle Settlement. The city has agreed with these recommendations with an expected implementation date of July 31st, 2023. Recommendation 1.8 states, the program should work with city agencies responsible for providing and monitoring training to ensure compliance with the city's record retention policy related to preserving training documentation. The city has agreed with this recommendation with an expected implementation date of July 31st, 2023. And lastly, uh, recommendation 1.9 on page 25 of the report states, the city attorney's office should work with responsible agencies to ensure the city's website contains, at a minimum, all information required by the Lyle Settlement and that the information is accurate so people experiencing homelessness can be easily informed of where and how to retrieve their personal belongings. The city attorney's office has agreed with this recommendation and reports it was implemented on April 3, 2023. I would now like to open the floor for any questions or comments from agencies or audit committee members.
7: So could I ask for 1.1 through 1.4, the Department of Transportation, to make any additional comments? And thank you for agreeing to all the recommendations. So.
8: Certainly. Yeah, no, I mean this, uh, again, Nicholas Williams, Department of Transportation Infrastructure Deputy Manager uh, on there. And and I think, yeah, our response is, Joe, that while we are confident in how we are um, uh, CONDUCTING THIS this BUSINESS, AND IT'S VERY IMPORTANT BUSINESS WHEN WE'RE DEALING WITH uh, FOLKS' BELONGINGS AND how, OUR DISCIPLINE ON HOW WE APPROACH THESE encampment CLEANUPS uh, POLICY AND THAT ADDITIONAL STRUCTURE, WE THINK THAT'S COMPLETELY APPROPRIATE AND CERTAINLY are WORKING ON THAT.
7: THANK YOU. Um, ANY QUESTIONS FROM THE COMMITTEE ON THE FIRST FOUR?
11: I HAVE A QUESTION REALLY QUICKLY. HOW MANY PEOPLE DO YOU HAVE WORKING <clears throat> TO ENSURE THAT THEY'RE PROPERLY RECORDING INVENTORY OF THE FOLKS IN, in, in THE DEPARTMENT OF TRANSPORTATION? How many folks do you currently have working on that issue, specifically, or about? Okay. Uh, Five total, including... Is that sufficient, in your opinion?
8: Uh, You know, I think when we get these structured, when we get these documents in, I do think we can manage that effectively uh, on there, and we'll see how that goes, and make adjustments as necessary. But I think with the proper structure in there, I do think it's appropriate.
11: Thank you very much.
7: Okay. Okay. Evan, five through eight are regarding the uh, response program. Do you want to make any additional comments?
14: Well, I think I would say, in general, um, mostly compliant as opposed to mostly not compliant is, I think, for us the most important point. This is a new program, and we created the program um, because we recognize the need for formality and intentionality around it. Um, we did agree with the recommendations, many of which we have already implemented and will be Im- implementing, in order to um, Im- improve the operation to the to the level of of, of care that this work requires. Okay, thank you, uh,
7: Florine.
17: I was just um, curious. Maybe you could give a little more um, uh, color around the how it's determined when an encampment is going to be addressed for cleanup.
2: Absolutely, I can help clear that up. So there are multiple facets to how that's determined and it really starts with input from all of our city agencies. Sorry, let me reintroduce myself too. This is my my first (laughs) audit. So my name is Matthew Williams. I'm the unauthorized encampment response program executive within the mayor's office. Um, So what we, we have stand up daily meetings with all the agencies involved and what we do is we take a look at our DDPHE public health and safety assessments. And those include anything from documenting those exact same things so uh, improperly disposed sharps uh, trash and debris accumulation right-of-way obstruction propane fire hazards they collect a lot of that uh, data and then that's provided to the group as well we also work with our dpd and dfd uh, agency representatives to gather that information um, on these specific locations as well and locations of concern and then we also work with our uh, partners at Dotty to determine the, the encumbrance level and things of, of right-of-way impediment from those agencies as well. Within all those, we take those to the discussion and then currently determine which of those uh, locations are the highest priority to clear due to that risk to not just the people inside the encampment, but the people outside of it as well. And so uh, through that discussion, that's how the, the determination is made. and. and the severity of those criteria that are identified.
17: Thank you, are you typically made aware, and initially made aware of unauthorized encampments by neighborhood people calling? Is that typically how that, or is there some programmatic drive-by of of all the streets?
2: It's a combination of a lot of that. Primarily, it is complaints. We receive uh, anywhere from 100 to 120 311s and, and Salesforce cases a day. Um, And we have multiple agencies, including uh, HOST, uh, the Department of Safety, and and myself that go through those. Um, So that's one of the ways that we find it. But also we have our agencies that are out in the field and making those uh, identifications as well.
17: Thank you.
12: Jack? Uh, Just out of curiosity, um, how many encampments do you have to do something with, on average, on a daily or weekly basis just to give some idea the, Yeah you know, what's going on out there on the street. And I, I know it's an estimate,
2: so it's, please. May, may I ask a clarifying question? Sure. Uh, are you looking for, like, the large-scale encumbrance removals, so our larger cleanups, or daily interaction just sites day by day?
12: Really? the. the the relocations as opposed to I'm sure there are tons <laughs> of interactions but just you know just to give us some perspective that's all I'm
2: absolutely so our large uh, scale encumbrance removals. so those are the larger cleanups that you that a lot of this looks at those typically are about two to three a week depending on the need um, we've had weeks where it's as low as one and we've had weeks where it's zero
14: thank you and and as a reminder you asked about the point in time count and you mentioned the number, but 1,313 people living unsheltered on the streets of Denver as of the, the last point in time count. 1,313 living outside.
7: Okay. Recommendation 1.9 Would the city attorney want to respond?
2: I think I may still. Be able to take that one, okay. if you're comfortable. So, the recommendation did cite that the city attorney would work with us to make sure that that is uh, in compliance and applicable, and they they do support us with that. Host currently manages that website, and so we go through uh, our friends at Host to make sure that that gets updated properly. So, I did make the uh, request to make sure that the 311 number was added to the website, which it was on April 3rd. Uh, we will continue to make sure that that website stays uh, current and consistent with any of the uh, verbiage and language that we need it to. So we will be working with our city attorneys to make sure that that is compliant. Um, but myself and our communications uh, folks at Host will be maintaining that website.
7: Thank you. Should we continue?
18: Our second sub-finding of finding one begins on page 25 of the report. It says the city cannot ensure equitable access to services or stored personal belongings for people experiencing homelessness. During our audit, the the city had six main teams providing outreach. We requested data from each team between January 1st, 2022 and June 30th, 2022. And we received data for five of the teams. While the city appears to provide access to services and equally conducts its assessments and cleanups across Denver, its data was unreliable. Specifically, we found issues with data consistency, missing data, and inaccurate locations across the teams. As shown in figure four on page 28, we mapped this data and determined that during the six month period, the five teams had visited at least 1,200 unique active encampment sites throughout Denver County. The locations show that the teams visited encampments to provide outreach and connections to services across the city and were not focused in just one area. We also found that the city provided more outreach and services than there were cleanups. Specifically, while there were cleanups at 74 encampment locations between January 1st, 2022 and June 30th, 2022, (coughs) the outreach teams provided services, again, to those at least 1,200 unique encampment sites during this time. The maps showing assessments, encampment sites, and complaints are shown in Appendix B, beginning on page 84. Still, like the outreach data, there were locations in the cleanups, assessments, and complaints data that we could not identify. Further, the cleanups and assessments addresses were not standardized. The data was manually entered, and several departments lacked policies and procedures for data input, tracking, and monitoring. We also looked at the Denver Park Rangers data from the same time period. Unlike the other data, the park rangers used an application to track specific coordinates where there were encampments or cleanups in the parks. While these coordinates helped more accurately identify encampment activity, the the data still contains some errors, such as blank values and incorrect dates. However, most encampment response teams, including Denver Parks and Recreation, intend to move to a centralized database this year. During our audit, we also looked at equitable access to property storage. Since 2018, the city's main property storage facility has been located at 1449 Galapago Street. As specified in the settlement agreement, the storage facility is open for two and a half hours, four days a week, from 6 to 8:30 a.m., and for six hours on Thursdays, from noon to 6 p.m. The settlement requires the city to store personal property for at least 60 days. The city's practice is to keep the property in the main storage facility on Galapago street for 30 days before transferring it to a separate long-term storage facility, not available to the public for the remaining 30 days. We reviewed environmental hazmat services records and found that between January 1st, 2019 and June 30th, 2022, there were 13% of 1069 instances in which property was moved to the long-term storage facility, before those 30 days that are communicated in notices to people at encampment sites. Staff said this was due to storage limitations as well as the city's garbage truck service dates. As shown in figure five on page 35, we also found that the Galapago Street storage facility is not near many encampment sites and people experiencing homelessness may not have access to transportation to get to the storage facility. Our analysis of homeless encampment cleanup data showed the average distance to the storage facility from encampment cleanup sites was over two miles, and the maximum distance between an encampment cleanup site and the storage facility was just over 13 miles. We also found that only 8.7% of 1,673 tagged personal property stored at the facility was picked up from January 1st, 2019 and June 30, 2022. Environmental Hazmat services staff said the short and early facility hours, along with limited access to transportation, may prevent people experiencing homelessness from retrieving their belongings. The city is compliant with the requirements on property storage hours as listed in the settlement. Still, the city did not conduct a formal needs assessment to determine the best location for the facility. The last area of equitable access that we looked at are with the city's communication practices. While compliant with the settlement, the city's practices for communicating with people experiencing homelessness may not provide equal access to information about services or retrieving their personal belongings. Specifically, the city does not have a documented process to communicate with people experiencing homelessness who speak a language other than English or who have a disability. Written notices about cleanups are provided only in English to people at encampment sites before a seven day or 48 hour notice, or cleanup, excuse me. Some city agencies rely on bilingual staff or the city's translation services to communicate in these situations. However, there are no formalized processes to guide the city employees to effectively communicate with all people experiencing homelessness. We have 10 recommendations for sub two of finding one. I will read all 10 before pausing to allow for questions and comments from the agencies and and audit committee members. On page 41, recommendations 1.10 and 1.11 state the Denver Unauthorized Encampment Response Program should continue developing a centralized database for the encampment response teams to provide consistent and centralized data tracking at the encampment sites, And they should work with the agencies to identify and adopt a consistent method for tracking location data such as using latitude and longitude coordinates the city agreed with these recommendations with an implementation date of december 31st 2023 on page 42 recommendations 1.12 and 1.13 state the program should develop policies and procedures for data input tracking and monitoring for outreach data and they should periodically monitor this data to ensure accuracy and identify trends. The city agreed with these recommendations with an implementation date of December 31, 2023. Recommendations 1.14 and 1.15 state the program should develop policies and procedures for data input, tracking and monitoring of its cleanups and assessments data and should periodically monitor this data to ensure accuracy. The city agreed with these recommendations with an implementation date of December 31st, 2023. Recommendation 1.16 on page 43 states, the program should conduct a needs assessment to determine the most appropriate locations and hours for the property storage facilities and should consider transportation needs and options as part of this assessment. The city agreed with this recommendation with an implementation date of April 1st, 2024 recommendation 1.17 states the department of transportation and infrastructure should work with its contractor should to document the process for when property can be moved from the main storage facility to long-term storage the agency agreed with this recommendation with an implementation date of june 30th 2023 recommendation 1.18 states the city should go above and beyond the settlement's requirements and provide information related to cleanups and property storage equitably to people who have limited English proficiency or who have a disability. The City agreed with this recommendation with an implementation date of December 31st, 2023. And finally, Recommendation 1.19 states the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure should work with the City Attorney's Office to revise notices at encampment sites to clearly state how long properties will be kept at both the main storage facility and the long term storage. Notices should clarify that a person may have to visit the main storage facility more than once to retrieve their belongings that were held off site. The agency agreed with this recommendation with an implementation date of today, April 20th, 2023. I now would like to open the floor for any questions or comments from the agencies and audit committee members.
7: Um, Matthew, I think these kind of fall in your lap. Uh, would you like to respond further?
2: Absolutely, and uh, you, you'll see my name through a lot of the <laughs> the audit as we get to uh, the way that I will be supporting a lot of the agencies through this. And while my name is associated with being responsible because I will be making sure these things do occur, I'm really going to be supporting these efforts through our agencies and making sure that we are all aligned to make sure that we not only just comply with this, but that we make sure that we get to a point where you know, we are tracking our data accurately, and we're making sure that things are, I guess, more formally tracked. We have a lot of this information, as is stated, and it's just making sure that we bring it all together and make the language that we all speak consistent. Um, a lot of that's going to be done with our app, NAV app. And that, hopefully, will be launching here in the next few months. Um, We are at the mercy of a contractor to put that together. So as they have hiccups, that does push our timeline out a little bit. Um, But what that app does is it provides a centralized location for all of our agencies that are involved in this response to input, receive, and make sure that that data that's provided is done in a consistent message, um, a consistent method. And as well as making sure the teams have access to all of that information as well. Um, A couple of these recommendations are things like formalizing location data, and NAVAP will convert all of that information into latitude and longitude. Uh, That includes the locations that come in on the complaints as well. So there won't be a a manual entry of there. It will be created at that latitude and longitude for teams to be able to see. Um, And then as far as cleanup data and and, uh, outreach data for our teams that perform outreach, there are uh, some limitations to... uh, limitations aren't there, requirements for how outreach data is tracked for uh, our outreach teams, and and Laura can speak to some of that, but uh, for our uh, teams that are primarily included in enforcement, but they also do outreach activities, those will be recorded within NAVAP as well. Um, So a lot of those recommendations there, as far as the data piece goes, uh, are going to be greatly addressed when NAVAP rolls out. Thank you. Rudy?
11: I have a question <clears throat> regarding the coordination. I think it's very difficult to try to coordinate efforts between agencies or among agencies, and and trying to achieve or instill quality control procedures, which I think we're all striving for in order to collect and properly record the data. But my question also has to do with the storage. What kind of challenges do you have in terms of short-term versus long-term storage? Because after a while. You run out of storage and you gotta keep things moving. So, how does the city address that particular issue?
8: Thank you. Again, Nicholas Williams, Department of Transportation Infrastructure. Um, yeah, I mean, it is a challenge, certainly, uh, on that. And I think that's why you see kind of the, the evolution of how we have conducted the storage how we have uh, had both short-term and long-term on there. And do think with this recommendation and the needs assessment, we'll be able to better refine that and better kind of meet the needs of the folks that have stuff stored there. Thank you.
7: Other questions from the committee? You know, the, the Lyle settlement seems to be a driving force behind what we're doing, what the city's doing. And to me, that's kind of a a base level of the way this should operate so that we're not violating people's civil rights. Are there plans within the response program to go above and beyond? I mean, these are a very vulnerable population uh, in Denver, especially the 1,313 that are living on the streets.
2: I think throughout this audit and as well as the policies and procedures and processes that. We do have, you see that the city strives to to not only just meet the requirements of the Lyle settlement, but to meet and exceed the needs of the people on the streets. And Laura can definitely do a much better job of talking about a lot of what we do there. But I do just want to be clear that, yes, the, the program not only is just to be here, to be in compliance with the Lyle settlement, but to make sure that we are taking care of the people on the streets as well.
16: Sure, Laura Brzezinski with Department of Housing Stability. I'll give a little bit more of an understanding of the um, suite of some of the different services that are provided and some of our different focus. One of the things that's talked about here as far as a uh, a host resource is some of our outreach services. Those are provided in part uh, via direct personnel within the department to provide really that housing focused outreach support navigation across different resources and connection to housing. We also have um, partners like the um, Colorado Coalition for the Homeless and other resource providers that are contractors for outreach services. Um, But broader than outreach, we have a wide array of different supports that we provide for people experiencing homelessness, those that are sheltered as well as um, experiencing unsheltered homelessness. Um, Housing is the solution. Uh, So we really focus our efforts on engaging and creating a pipeline of affordable and supportive housing, as well as programmatic assistance that helps to resolve an experience of homelessness. Uh, Evan said early, we have nearly 15,000 people who have been connected from homelessness to housing over the tenure of the Hancock administration. So that is really our focus. Um, But other services and supports, um, particularly for those who are experiencing unsheltered homelessness, In addition to outreach, we really have focused on expanding our tools for shelter alternatives in addition to shelter, so things like safe outdoor spaces, um, safe parking programs, um, again with the focus on connecting people to the housing solution that can help end an experience of homelessness. Uh, We have some really important investments this year that we are um, expanding as our tools for support for especially those who are experiencing unsheltered homelessness. Um, There are models used in other communities like Houston for encampment resolution where uh, an investment into significant outreach to connect to bridge navigation units to then exit to uh, a housing solution can help really um, focus on serving those who may be currently residing in an encampment to get connected to that housing intervention. So um, we have resources over $40 million this year with our ARPA, um, one-time federal funds, to help support acquisition of hotels or other like properties that can help support implementation of that model alongside additional outreach services. So if you have any particular questions about some of those interventions, just let me know. but those are some of the wider context around the agency's efforts to resolve experiences of homelessness.
14: If I may, um, just to underscore, I guess, your question, do we plan to go above and beyond? And that's the last point that Laura was just making. Yes, everything that we are doing is geared to reduce the number of people that are living in encampments. This this last effort that Laura just mentioned encampment resolution by moving communities of encampments um, moving people who are living in encampments into temporary housing at first and then permanent housing together so they move as a community and then an encampment is is cleaned and closed I think that will be the gold standard for Denver and trying to adopt and adapt that best practice from other cities around the country is um, a big focus of what we budgeted for this year thank you
7: Um, Laura, can I ask a specific question about there's a motel, a former motel at I 25 and Colorado Boulevard where there's a fence around it and there are some encampments now outside the fence. Is that on your target list to purchase?
16: Uh, I can certainly uh, follow up with you to understand a little bit more about the specific location that you are referring to um, to connect as part of the, the pipeline of our team. Um, but we are currently uh, working with the real estate department to work on the uh, pipeline of those acquisitions and actually have an active procurement for partners to um, come forward and identify qualifications to be part of that acquisition pipeline. But I'd uh, be happy to follow up and learn a little bit more about the sure, specific it's location. Colorado
7: and Bucktail. Thank you. Yeah the former looking at yeah. yeah okay thanks let's uh continue
19: all right thank you Isabel, and good morning everyone <clears throat> finding two begins on page 45 of the report and says that the city is not tracking expenses related to homeless encampments or sufficiently monitoring invoices and contract performance this finding has two sub findings Subfinding 1 of finding 2 says that the city does not have a formal process to track costs for homeless encampment efforts. Because the city does not track how much it spends on homeless encampments we wanted to quantify that amount ourselves. To do so we requested details and documentation from the 10 agencies related to costs for enforcement outreach and cleanup efforts from January 2019 through June 2022. Those costs included expenses related to personnel, contractors, equipment, information systems, and any additional expenses that the agencies determined were relevant. The 10 agencies provided a combined total of $13.65 million worth of self-reported expenses, which we then categorized among enforcement, outreach, and cleanup costs, based on our understanding of how each agency's efforts fit into the larger picture of encampment response. However, due to limitations in the agency's self-reported data, the breakdown in figure six on page 47 may not be accurate while we did not find any citywide or agency specific guidance on what expenses that relate to encampment response efforts should be tracked we were told that challenges exist which hinder an agency's ability to track those expenses and impacted our ability to provide assurance over the accuracy or completeness of the total first staff in some agencies provide services such as outreach to any person experiencing homelessness not just those living in encampments further despite the city's efforts to prevent this Some people experiencing homelessness can be both sheltered and unsheltered during a given day, which complicates expense tracking efforts. Additionally, emergency services agencies, such as the fire and police departments, do not track their calls related to encampments separately from other calls, and park rangers do not track their time or expenses based on the type of enforcement performed. Also, only four of the 10 agencies provided us with expenses for the entire requested time period, and only one agency provided third-party documentation, such as invoices, to support its self-reported expenses. Regardless, federal guidance says that cities should define the scope of a cost estimate, record activities involved in responding to encampments, gather costs from stakeholders, and analyze the cost data. In our research of other cities like Denver, we learned that Seattle, Portland, Oregon, and Chicago have implemented procedures for tracking encampment-related expenses. We also learned that Denver uses specific tags within its financial system, Workday, for other multi-agency programs and efforts, but those tags are not used for encampment-related expenses. By not tracking encampment-related expenses, the city cannot ensure that its spending is efficient and effective, or that it is meeting goals of the unauthorized encampment response program. The city also cannot compare encampment-related expenses with those for other homelessness initiatives, or offer transparency with residents about how it spends money on responding to encampments. We have three recommendations for subfinding. one of finding two recommendations 2.1 2.2 and 2.3 on page 49 state the Denver unauthorized encampment response program should work with city agencies to determine how encampment response expenses should be calculated which expenses should be included to develop a method for tracking those expenses and to document policies and procedures to ensure consistency across city agencies. The city agreed with all three recommendations with an implementation date of December 31st, 2023. I'll pause here before moving on to the next subfinding for questions and comments.
7: Any questions on the sub-finding recommendations? Any comments
14: from the program? Uh, I would say, uh, we can do a better job of tracking expenses. We probably could have done a better job responding to the request for information for this audit. Um, I will say that um, the proportion of dollars spent on outreach enforcement and cleanups is, is, is right and probably wouldn't change even if the dollar amount changes. The fact that we are spending most, almost two thirds of resources uh as analyzed in this audit on outreach is a positive a very positive um even if the amount changes a bit the total dollar um when you compare that to the 250 million dollars that we are spending this year to reduce homelessness to prevent homelessness and to increase affordable housing um that seems like the right balance to me thank you
19: dan Thank you. Subfinding two of finding two begins on page 49 of the report and says that the city insufficiently monitors contractors who provide services related to homeless encampment response. The city has contractors to perform services to assist with responding to encampments. However, we found that city agencies are not adequately overseeing the approval and payment of invoices. And further, while some agencies do provide sufficient oversight of the performance of those contractors, others do not. We reviewed invoice payments and monitoring efforts for three contracts based on their level of risk. We looked at dollar amounts, previously identified issues, and presence of policies and procedures for contract monitoring. Specifically, we looked at one contract for hazardous waste cleanup and the operation of the city's storage facility. Another for the performance of outreach services to people experiencing homelessness and a third, to provide various barricades and traffic control devices during encampment cleanups. Across those three contracts, we found generally insufficient contract monitoring processes, which led to issues related to invoice timing, the contents and accuracy of invoices, which sometimes resulted in overpayments by the city, the approval of erroneous invoices, a lack of supporting documentation, and overbilling for services, some of which were not received. Without adequate oversight of the invoice process, the city risks overpaying for services, paying for services it does not receive, and paying for services and expenses that are not allowed by a given contract. Further, the city cannot ensure that it is spending money on encampment efforts efficiently and effectively. And without sufficient policies and procedures related to contract monitoring, the city cannot ensure that contract terms are being met or track program outcomes and determine the quality of services being provided. We have six recommendations for subfinding two of finding two. I will read all six before pausing to allow for questions and comments from the agencies and audit committee members. On page 55 of the report, recommendations 2.4 and 2.5 state the Denver Unauthorized Encampment Response Program should work with agencies to identify a person within each agency to be responsible for reviewing and approving invoice payments and should create policies and procedures for the invoice approval process. The city agreed with these recommendations with an implementation date of December 31st, 2023. Recommendations 2.6 and 2.7 state the program should work with agencies to identify a person within each agency to monitor contractor and master purchase order compliance and performance for encampment-related contracts and should create policies and procedures for this process. The city agreed with these recommendations with an implementation date of December 31st, 2023. Recommendation 2.8 states that city agencies responsible for invoice payment and contract monitoring should comply with the city's records retention policy related to invoice supporting documentation. The agencies agreed with its recommendation with an implementation date of December 31st, 2023. And recommendation 2.9 states the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure and the Department of Public Health and Environment should identify and implement a method to ensure that adequate security services are provided during all hours the property storage facility is open to the public, in accordance with the Environmental Hazmat Services contract. The agencies agreed with the recommendation and said it had been implemented as of March 1, 2023. I would like to open up the floor for any questions or comments from the agencies and audit committee members.
7: Any questions from the committee?
11: I have one. Rudy. How does the uh, Mr. Williams, how would you go about in terms of identifying expenses straight across all the agencies and get an agreement on that? As a because one of the recommendations identify the expenses to track. So What would you be your methodology in terms of of uh, identifying the expenses agency across the city
2: well I I, as far as the program involvement with this is I'm going to be working with all the agencies to make sure that's happening and that includes the budget management office and and really just all of the heads of the agencies that are going to be covering this so my role in this specifically is just going to be making sure that that continues to move forward and that we get these things in place now
11: would you would that end in, like, in a memo of understanding among the agencies that you're aud- or that you're working with? I mean, in order to identify and track these expenses, that's where I'm getting at mostly. I,
2: I mean, we'll, we'll make sure that these policies and procedures are, are formally documented. I don't know if a memorandum of understanding is the appropriate measure because I'm not 100% familiar. I'm with I'm just those throwing emails. that out. Just so, but yes, these will be formally documented.
11: Yeah, that's my biggest concern is that that's where the gaps. When you do a gap analysis in terms of the agencies. When it breaks down, it's a failure of the agencies to identify those expenses up front and then track them afterwards. That's where I was going with this line of questioning. Thank you.
8: If I just may add to Matt's comments, I think he he hit what
11: I was going to hit on
8: there. And, and yeah, uh, MOU uh, service level agreements is relatively common between the agencies, and likely that would be the vehicle that we use to to define this. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. That
2: was my ignorance.
7: (laughs) So I... uh, I will repeat what we talked about, Evan, across the hall earlier this week, but I just think the program needs a lot more structure to it um, where it would have a budget, and a budget makes it pretty easy to track expenses, uh, and some of that budget would come from the various departments that are represented here, but that way you're able to fix responsibility with an individual. You have goals and objectives that you monitor, uh, that you adjust You know, with the information that you collect. Um, monitoring contracts would be fixed with one department or one office, um, and tracking the outcomes. I mean, I think all the things that go on in other departments, agencies, and offices, really, this program warrants it, and that's, that's what I'm here for, is to tell you that,
14: so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, uh, again, this is a, a, a brand new program. And Nick used the phrase evolution. Mm. Um, I would also say iterative. Um, we, as a city, were doing this work in, a, in an informal fashion, trying to coordinate it as much as possible. This program is an acknowledgment of the need for formality. And as a program matures, I think some of the things that you're, you're pointing out will occur anyway.
7: Well, I contrast it to the, you know, when the marijuana, which we'll be all celebrating this afternoon, I guess. um, When that initiative passed, uh, the mayor created an Office of Marijuana Policy, I think it was, uh, that grabbed hold of that issue. I think it was a very successful implementation of how that that industry is regulated and enforced. I think this warrants you know, this kind of care also. And then when the marijuana seemed to be up and running appropriately, uh, they folded it into
14: uh, a different department. And maybe this could follow that same, the same model. Yeah. I mean, I think that obviously there's a difference between regulating an industry like marijuana and, and trying to address the extremely complicated and complex needs of human beings.
7: I totally agree. That's why I think it would be appropriate to have its own department, so to speak. Danielle, are you next?
15: Thank you, you. and good morning. Finding three, the city's draft program management plan needs improvements to effectively guide city agencies (laughs) in their unauthorized encampment responsibilities and begins on page 57 of the report. The mayor's office and a group of city leaders created a draft program management plan for the Denver Unauthorized Encampment Response Program in March 2021. The plan is meant to assist city agencies in activities related to unauthorized encampments by ensuring all agencies are well-coordinated and meet legal requirements and obligations. The city's draft plan aligns with some elements of leading practice for program design. For example, the draft plan says meetings and communication to Coordinate and share information should happen regularly among city agencies involved in encampment response. The mayor's office and several other city agencies involved in responding to homeless encampments meet twice a day to discuss outreach and engagement with enforcement teams and to identify and prioritize efforts in certain locations. Additionally, the mayor's office managers said a group made up of people experiencing homelessness and their representatives meet quarterly to discuss the needs of people experiencing homelessness and address concerns. However, areas for improvement include the following. Beginning on page 58, city leaders from the mayor's office say the draft program management plan will never be finalized. It will always be a living document and is expected to develop over time. Leading practices say, once a program plan is set, it is important for managers to resist making continual changes. Effective evaluation needs several years of data to show patterns of success. Continual revisions and changes restarts the clock on evaluations and delays outcomes. Managers in the mayor's office said that while the program was designed with input from stakeholders, the city did not conduct a formal assessment or situational analysis to identify program needs managers met with with the advisory group and staff who had previous experience in similar work to identify risks. However, without a formal needs assessment, the program will not benefit from an all-encompassing and documented review of what is needed from multiple perspectives. As outlined in page 60, while the draft program management plan outlines goals and objectives, most did not include a timeline for when these goals should be met or have defined metrics for measuring success. Additionally, there is no time frame for evaluating the program or target dates for when goals should be achieved. Without performance metrics or monitoring tools, managers cannot make sure the program is successful in meeting its goals to reduce the number of people experiencing unsheltered homelessness and respond to health and safety risks. Managers in the mayor's office say these will be developed and documented in the future. On page 62, policies and procedures and clearly defined responsibilities for some agencies and teams, such as those providing enforcement and outreach, were not included in the July 2022 version of the draft program management plan that we reviewed. The plan did, however, include some policies and procedures for the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure and Parks and Recreation. On page 63, Unauthorized encampment response program managers said policies and procedures and responsibilities for enforcement and for some outreach teams Were not included in the draft plan because their responsibilities were not yet set They said this would be documented in the next version of the draft plan Lacking documented policies and procedures which clearly define responsibilities means staff may not successfully perform daily tasks potentially leading to an ineffective program and the city risks losing knowledge when key staff members leave the city City staff responsible for conducting assessments and prioritizing cleanups say they use public health, environmental, and public safety data to prioritize cleanups, but this criteria is not documented in the documented or in the program management plan and is still being developed. When comparing Denver to similar cities we researched, we found 85% have documented processes for prioritizing cleanup visits, visits or cleanups. For example, Portland, Oregon conducts assessments on a first-come, first-served basis, but it prioritizes cleanups based on risk levels. Categories are weighed based on high or low priority. If Denver does not have a defined criteria for prioritizing cleanups, it cannot ensure cleanups are being completed in an equitable manner based on risks. We have seven recommendations for finding three. I will read all seven recommendations before pausing to allow for questions and comments from the agencies and audit committee members. Recommendation 3.1 on page 64 states the Denver Unauthorized Encampment Response Program should document its need, including a formal assessment of risks and stakeholder input to inform the draft program management plan. The city agreed with this recommendation and reported it had been implemented on June 1, 2022. Recommendation 3.2 and 3.3 state the program should develop a timeline and performance metrics for all of its goals. The city agreed with these recommendations with a implementation date of October thirty first, twenty twenty three. Recommendation three point four states the program should develop and document criteria for systematically determining how to prioritize encampment cleanups. The city agreed with this recommendation with an implementation date of December thirty first, twenty twenty three. Recommendation three point five states the program should update its draft program management plan to identify all responsibilities responsible parties, document policies and procedures for all agencies and teams involved in all encampment response efforts and establish a process for ongoing program monitoring. Once the draft plan is revised, it should be finalized it should finalize the plan. The city agreed with this recommendation with an implementation date of December thirty first, twenty twenty-three. Recommendations three point six and three point seven states the program should use quality data to monitor program effectiveness and progress towards meeting its defined goals and objectives. The program should revise the plan in line with leading practices and after reviewing the results of the program, monitoring is necessary. The city agreed with these recommendations with an implementation date of December 31st, 2023. I would like to open the floor for questions or comments from the agencies and audit committee members.
7: Matthew?
2: I think I want to start with the first recommendation, please, and that's the assessing the need for the program i I think this audit itself proves that there needs to be a formal and centralized organization of this response and through all of this and through the data that has been gathered and what we experience day-to-day here as a city the the program is needed a, a form to make sure that everyone at the table is sitting at the table and making sure that we are taking an equitable an appropriate approach to not just our enforcement activities, our outreach activities, our support activities. And beyond just the anecdotal evidence of why this should exist, the mayor and the city leadership came together because of the need of this and came up with the plan to implement this program we did take uh, the stakeholder input, we did take uh, input from the agencies, from people experiencing homelessness, from people with lived experience, from our outreach partners, and we not only just created this draft plan, which we do agree does continue to need to be added to and, and changed and edited to address the needs that we're talking about, but we did also evaluate risk and created a formal risk register that was provided to the auditor's office as well. And so, while maybe not all of the processes that went into that were formally documented, the documents that were created itself show that the, the efforts were absolutely made to make sure that we determined the need for this program and to show why that need is.
7: Thank you. Thank you. Any comment on the other recommendations?
2: I think as we were just saying, we agree, you know, this is a brand new program that is continuing to change and evolve to address a ever changing and evolving situation. And we do understand that, you know, policies and procedures need to be able to be monitored and addressed and and outcomes need to be uh, determined as well. The program does have goals that don't have an end date. You know, those are going to be things like abiding by, you know, law and, and ordinance. Um, but there are ways that we can track you know compliance of that and so we do agree that we will make sure that we identify the proper goals the proper metrics uh, and the the reportable nature of those and once again nav will really help make sure that we capture those things um, as far as the things like criteria and waiting for uh, the way that uh, locations for cleanup are identified uh, once again nav is going to take all the criteria that we have uh, that we spoke about here formalize that within the program, uh, the application itself, and then that will allow us to score these locations based on that risk, and we will be using that as a way to make sure that these locations are prioritized in an equitable fashion.
15: Thank you. Thank you. On to finding four, our last finding. Beginning on page 67, finding four, the city's encampment response program may not be appropriately staffed to achieve its goals and responsibilities. While the draft unauthorized program management plan outlines agency responsibilities for responding to encampments, the mayor's office and unauthorized encampment response program coordinators did not conduct a formal (coughs) analysis to identify staff staff needed to ensure the program goals are met. Managers said they may not have enough staff to meet goals and objectives because they may have underestimated the staff resources needed. At the same time, competing city priorities may lead lead to staff shortages. Managers also identified staff burnout, especially for overwhelmed cleanup staff as a risk for increased staff turnover. Managers said reduced staff would have a significant impact on the program and its ability to deliver services. Affected departments, such as transportation and infrastructure and housing stability, plan to increase their staff and provide mental health support to staff as needed. But without a complete workforce analysis, Managers cannot ensure the city has adequate staff to achieve program objectives, to respond to encampments, provide services, and reduce the number of people experiencing (coughs) unsheltered homelessness. We have one recommendation for finding four. Recommendation 4.1 on page 68 of the report states the Denver Unauthorized Encampment Response Program should conduct a formal staffing (coughs) workforce analysis to identify existing staffing levels and determine needs to meet program objectives and goals. The city agreed with this recommendation with an implementation date of December 31st, 2024. This concludes our presentation. We thank you for your time and would like to open the floor for any questions or comments from the agencies and audit committee members.
7: Matthew, you've agreed to the staffing analysis recommendation. Any further comment?
2: I think the only thing that I want to add is that as we look towards a new administration, there is the potential for the roles and responsibilities of all teams involved to change. Um, and that depends on the priorities that are set forth of the future administration. Um, so the workforce analysis will be heavily dependent on the roles and responsibilities that are identified as we move forward.
17: Is that is that why you have December 31st of 2024 uh, as the goals? Because nearly 18 months because you're not sure what's going to happen in the meantime?
2: That is correct. OK. <laughs>
7: Jack?
12: Uh, Evan, you've been in the uh, Hancock administration right from the beginning, if I'm not mistaken, and the whole issue, you know, there's going to be a runoff election. We don't know who the next mayor is going to be, but this is obviously from what, at least from my perspective, one of the four or five major issues that the city is facing. Um, having been through the first cycle, the full cycle, what do you what time would you recommend to the auditor's office in terms of following up this audit? Uh, to see what's being done do you think it January of 2024 given the dates is appropriate but you've got a pretty good sense of what transitions require etc and if you have a,
14: uh,
12: a recommendation for us uh, we'd really appreciate
14: hearing it uh, um, it's a great point and uh, I'm a little surprised that it only came up here at the very end um, I, I think We don't know what the future of this program will look like when the next administration takes office in 88 days and then gets up to speed and um, determines how or if even it wants to continue with the program or make any changes to it. So, uh, And I think probably you're looking at a couple of years um, from today before a follow-up audit could have some depth to it for some meaning and some value.
7: I think you're talking about another audit like this, not just a follow-up on the recommendations. Is that correct?
12: Well, no, I, at, at this point, I, I mean a follow-up on the recommendations. Okay. Because, you know, obviously there might be some other changes, but it, this is such a big issue to the city.
17: Mm-hmm.
12: It's not the kind of thing that you, you want to wait two years to kind of see what's you know, what's happening, and, and your points are well taken. Um, but I'm talking about just the follow-up on this, uh, because there's, a, there's this transition period, yeah. and, you, and you've been through one of these, so you know what this means, and we haven't.
14: So that's why I'm asking you the question. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's my opinion. Uh, and I, In some ways, I think that, that perhaps this audit would have benefited. From having the new administration in place um, uh, I've said it a couple of times but this program is so new um, and is in formation I think it, it it needs a little bit more time to mature
12: thank
17: you and, and, well, this can be a guideline for the new administration
14: mm-hmm. uh, oh I'm sure it exactly will be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt well now, may I take a minute to thank the audit team yeah you bet Um, this is the most complicated issue that this administration um, has dealt with and no doubt will be the most complicated issue that the next administration will deal with. And it's not just an issue of, of unsheltered homelessness because of a housing crisis. It is more complicated because of a drug crisis, a mental health crisis, and the ongoing fallout from the pandemic. All of these things are woven together Um, to make the challenges of trying to assist 1,313 people um, even more complicated. And, and cars, you and your team did a great job of really trying to understand um, those complexities and how we as an administration attempt to go about them uh, addressing them on a day-to-day basis. Uh, I I think it's important also to point out one of the things that Laura mentioned. Every night we shelter 2,000 people. Over the last 12 years, we have been able to provide housing to 15,000 people um, and we've invested in 9,000 affordable housing units. Um, That is the work that happens every day and it happens quietly and it happens behind the scenes. This work obviously happens um, uh, under the glare of the spotlight, which adds another layer of complexity to it, but I just wanted to say thank you. Um, I also want to thank the people uh, in the administration who did this work every single day. It's hard, Um, it's really difficult, uh, but it means a lot. And people put their heart and soul into it because they know at the end of the day, if we can get one person into a better situation, then it was worth it. Thank you.
1: Thank you, that means a lot.
7: And thank you for all that you do, all of you, for what you do. Because I agree, Evan, this is the most complex problem we have in society today, and uh, for all the reasons that you described. Okay, thank you. Well, that concludes uh, our briefing on the homeless encampments. We have uh, Denver International Airport, Great Hall Construction. Why don't we take about a two minute at ease while we change uh, players here.
15: Proper procedures. So, with that, I'll pass this to Te- Pat and his team, and they'll get started on briefing the Great Hall construction audit.
3: Hi, right. I'm Pat. This is team five. I've got Carl, June, Katie, and, and Ben.
7: That, that's as brief an introduction as I've heard. So, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Jim, and uh, would you like to introduce yourself and your colleague here?
10: Sure. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, Jim Starling, I'm executive vice president and the chief uh, construction and infrastructure officer at the airport.
20: And good morning, Michael Sheehan, DEN senior vice president for special projects.
3: Okay. Patrick. Yeah. Turn it over to Carl. Do the background. Okay.
21: Thanks, Pat and good morning Audit Committee and Denver Airport team. Denver International Airport opened in 1995. And Jefferson Terminal, the airport's main terminal, was originally designed to accommodate 50 million passengers a year. By 2007, passenger traffic reached this level. And by 2019, that figure had re- increased to over 69 mil- million passengers a year. Today, Denver International Airport is one of the busiest airports in the world, and airport officials expect passenger volumes to continue to increase, estimating passenger traffic will reach 100 million passengers a year by 2032. The Great Hall refers to the main area in Jefferson Terminal that lies beneath the airport's iconic tented roof. To ensure the airport terminal can handle future traffic, Airport officials sought to update the terminal's infrastructure, including redesigning and renovating the Great Hall to improve passenger traffic flows through the airport's check-in areas and security checkpoints. The airport contracted with Great Hall Partners, LLC, in 2018 to start this process. This 34-year-long contract included a construction piece to renovate areas within the Great Hall but then also allowed Great Hall Partners to manage certain areas of the terminal after construction was completed for the duration of the contract. However, that partnership lasted less than 18 months before the airport terminated its contract with Great Hall Partners in August 2019 at a cost of $183 million. Areas of contention between the Great Hall Partners and the airport leading (coughs) up to the termination included schedule delays, safety issues, and increased project costs. For those following along, page two of our report includes more details on the original project, and figure two on page three of the report shows the events leading up to the airport ending its contract with Great Hall Partners. With the need to continue construction work that was started by Great Hall Partners, airport officials moved quickly to select new design and construction firms. And by October 2019, less than two months after terminating Great Hall Partners, the airport had procured a new contractor, Hensel Phelps Construction Company, to take over the active construction site and oversee construction of the Great Hall under a revised schedule and a re-envisioned scope of work. The new schedule for the Great Hall Project splits this work into three overlapping phases, as shown on Figure 1 in page 2 of the report. As of the beginning of this year, phase two construction was more than halfway done and work has already begun on phase three. The airport expects construction to finish in 2028. In total, Great Hall renovations are expected to cost $2.1 billion, which includes about $245 million spent (coughs) under the airport's previous contract with Great Hall partners. You can find more information about costs and renovations the project intends to complete at the bottom of page 3 and the top of page 4 of the report. Our audit focused on Phases 1 and 2 of the revised project. Denver Airport Special Project Division is responsible for managing and overseeing the Great Hall project. And when the airport procures contractors to build its construction projects, it must also manage and oversee the con- contractors and monitor contract performance. Wait a minute, let's see. A construction projects delivery method sets the foundation for how contracts are structured and how projects should be managed. The term project delivery re- refers to the construction contractual relationships, roles, and responsibilities of all parties involved in a project. These may include the owner, the designer, and the contractor. While there are many types of project delivery methods, each distinguished by the way a (coughs) contract may work between the entities involved, this morning we will focus on the construction manager general contractor project delivery method, which the airport is using in its contract with Hensel Phelps. As shown in figure three on page five of the report, the relationships between these parties can vary based on the delivery method used. The construction manager, um, sorry, The construction manager general contractor method allows the contractor, in our case Hensel Phelps, to be involved earlier on in the project to leverage its expertise to weigh in on the design process. And once construction begins, the same contractor then functions as the general contractor. This early infusion of a contractor's expertise and input on the project is one of the biggest advantages of using this delivery method. And by using this delivery method, the owner is allowed more flexibility and more control during the um, project's design phase. It can also be advantageous for accelerated project schedules and also allows owners to confirm and control costs earlier on in the project. Under the airport's current contract, Hensel Phelps must provide a work plan and a price proposal for each phase. Airport officials review each proposal for completeness and negotiate conditions of performance once suitable conditions are agreed upon including price and completion time special projects then issues a task order to authorize the start of construction work each task order stipulates a maximum dollar amount representing the most the airport will pay for the cost of construction work. In industry terms, this maximum amount is called a guaranteed maximum price and is not to be exceeded. Hensel Phelps regularly bills the airport as construction is completed and is paid for the actual cost of those services, materials, labor, plus a percentage fee for profit and another fee for general and administrative costs. As Hensel Phelps is responsible for the construction of the Great Hall project, it hires subcontractors to do some of the work. To that end, the company contracts with subcontractors, or it might perform some construction work itself. When a contractor subcontracts work to itself, it's known as self-performed work, and this is a common and widely used practice throughout the construction industry. As the construction manager and general contractor, Hensel Phelps is also responsible for any risks associated with construction costs that exceed the guaranteed maximum price and is also liable for any cost overruns unless authorized by the airport. The objective of our audit was to determine whether Denver International Airport's Special Projects Division is adequately managing and overseeing the current Great Hall construction project to ensure the airport procured its new contractor in a fair, open, and competitive manner, and that the airport (laughs) is not being overcharged for construction costs on the Great Hall project. Our scope covered reviewing procurement and construction work occurring in Phases 1 and 2. I will now pause here uh, for any questions and comments from the Audit Committee or the airport before handing the presentation over to June who will go through our findings.
7: I don't see any. I think we can continue.
0: Thank you, Carl. We have one overall finding which begins on page 9 of the report. Denver International Airport needs to strengthen its management and oversight of the Great Hall Construction Project, To ensure the best value for the city our first sub finding begins on page 10 of the report the airport has no process to select the best project delivery method for its construction projects airport management did not use a structured or risk-based approach before choosing the construction manager general contractor project delivery method for the Great Hall Instead, airport management relied on their professional judgment and previous experience with other city projects. Continuing on page 11 of the report, the airport acknowledged the lack of a structured process has been an ongoing issue identified on past construction projects. Establishing a formalized approach for selecting the most suitable project delivery method can help prevent inefficient and ineffective project oversight including inflated construction costs and avoidable project delays. Recommendation 1.1 on page 12 of the report says, the airport special projects division should develop and implement a process to ensure managers and staff use a risk-based approach to select a construction projects delivery method. This process should align with leading practices and should be thoroughly documented and include primary selection factors. As well as staff's rationale for the chosen method. The agency agreed with this recommendation with the implementation date of June 1st 2023. I would now like to open the floor for any questions and comments from the agency and audit committee members.
7: Any questions from the committee? Any comments from the airport?
10: I would just uh, add to that that um, we have developed a um, Procurement selection guide um, through the Pena audit uh, that that happened last year. And so uh, we will look to expand that um, Within the different groups that do construction within the airport. They all um, are within my department. So we'll develop a uh, Modify that pre- procurement guide so that it works for all um, areas Okay, thank you okay, Let's,
0: go. let's okay.
7: continue yeah
0: Our second sub-finding begins on page 13 of the report. The airport did not follow its normal procurement process when selecting Hensel Phelps as the new Great Hall contractor. After the airport announced in August 2019 that it was terminating its relationship with the Great Hall partners, airport officials expedited their procurement process to identify a replacement contractor. This caused them to deviate from established procurement procedures. Continuing on page 13 of the report, we also found the airport did not develop or retain supporting documentation for the procurement steps they did follow, such as score sheets to show how evaluation criteria was used to score prospective contractors. Airport officials said the city attorney's office and the airport's own legal department were content with the expedited manner in which Hansel Phelps was selected. However, because no verifiable documentation exists, we cannot independently determine whether the airport followed a fair, reasonable and competitive bidding process and that the city received the best value through its new contract with Hensel Phelps. As discussed on page 15 of the report, we surveyed seven other major us airports and the city's department of transportation and infrastructure and confirmed they had separate policies and procedures in place to guide their decision-making for time sensitive procurements. They also confirmed they kept documentation of the selection process results. We have two recommendations. Recommendation 1.2 on page 17 of the report says, the Airport Special Projects Division should follow its standard operating procedures for construction procurement and ensure thorough documentation exists for each project to show staff met all required steps in the procurement process. The agency disagreed with this recommendation See page 64 of our response in the auditor's addendum. Recommendation 1.3 on page 17 of the report states that the airport's special projects division should work with the airport's business management services to update its existing standard operating procedures for construction procurement to include necessary um, steps staff should take for special cases when a procurement needs to be expedited. The agency agreed with this recommendation with the implementation date of December 1st, 2023. I would now like to open the floor for any questions or comments from the agency and audit committee members.
11: Rudy. I would like to get some more elaboration Why you disagree with uh, finding 1.2 in terms of the selection process or the documentation. So I
10: would just... Uh start by saying I wasn't uh, at the airport at the time when the uh, when this procurement was uh, made but um, I think the documentation that I reviewed um, shows I mean this is an extremely unique situation uh, where we're terminating the the current contractor the the airport was in a state of uh, construction um, which posed uh, several risks but The documentation that i reviewed you know shows that the um, the procurement did follow uh, the city requirements x08 Um, and i understand the the uh, recommendation for best practices as far as documenting those situations Um, i can only tell you that you know reviewing it 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 follows city uh, requirements Um, so it's it's tough to monday morning quarterback what was done at the time um, in that very unique situation
11: I noticed that the legal department <clears throat> of Denver did review the, uh, the plan and agreed with it, but yet there was no documentation. Is that my understanding? They, The city attorney did not provide any uh, documentation
20: on the approval or? That is correct. Thank you. They were part of the conversation though, and it yeah. did go through them for approval. The one thing I would note to Jim's point is procurements conducted since the Great Hall procurement in 2019, which was a very unique circumstance, has followed all SOPs and procurement guidelines.
7: Thank you. So what are you disagreeing with?
20: I think it's more of a formality. Uh, we we agree with it, but then we are asked to come up with an actionable date. This is in the past a very unique circumstance, and I think 1.3 really speaks to it, and that's develop an emergency procurement procedure which we have <coughs> agreed to. But I guess it's how do you undo something that was a very unique in the past and we're agreeing to it. We have been doing it since 2019 and we're doing it moving forward.
7: Well, the record says that you disagree and I mean, do you disagree that there should be documentation about the decision that was made?
20: No, we don't disagree with that.
7: Is anyone else
11: confused? (laughs) Yes. Maybe the response should
7: be... We Want could. to amend the
14: response?
20: Yeah, I'm not sure what Think to say about because it, then. we <laughs> have been following the standard, our SOPs since the 2019. Obviously, Great Hall was a very unique circumstance. I would hope we could all agree on that. And it didn't go through our standard procurement, which would have taken us more than a year to procure a new contractor and get in the place. Our goal was to restart the project as quickly as possible, try to transition in the existing subcontractors who were still wrapped up in the pre- former deal and move forward with the project so that we can really Minimize that disruption to the traveling public because you'll recall with that first phase people on level six had to go outside and around or down and up. It was very it it was really a huge inconvenience and also with our infrastructure exposed and subject to freezing. We were really in a vulnerable state.
10: Ed. So am I hearing that you would do it again the same way if you were in the same situation which might be okay. I'm just curious because that might be where the confusion is coming from.
20: You know, it, it, that's hard to say. Hindsight's 2020. We strive for perfection. This was not perfect. Trying to transition in existing subcontractors and designers who were wrapped up in a previous deal that we're fearful was heading towards litigation was very cumbersome. But they're all local outside the leads, and we wanted to engage them on something they had already started and keep them at the table moving forward if we could and finding the right partner to work with us. I think you could always look at this and say in hindsight, we might have done this differently, but that was the direction at the time by this really the leadership at the airport, which it was a different leadership team at that time, of course.
13: It sounds like to me, it's really just an interpretation of what the recommendation is saying, and, and maybe I'm not understanding, but it said that you should follow your SOPs for construction, duh, duh, duh. I'm hearing you say yes. We will. Yes.
2: So but I don't this, understand
13: the disagreement.
2: But if this situation comes up again, God forbid, you know, um, would they do would it?
13: They do the it? I don't way, know, right? and
4: would I want them to? I don't. I don't know.
20: I don't know either. To that point, I would say 1.3 addresses when it would come up again. Is it going to be perfect and fit all circumstances? I, I hope I never see anything like this again, personally.
13: So, so do we. Yeah. 1. Point,
21: <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. 1.3 covers that for the future, I suppose.
12: So I just want to confirm this. If we were to say, okay, let's let bygones be bygones. If we were to say that and that this occurred, were you with the city at the time?
20: I I joined the great hall project in February of 2019. So it was midway. The termination was issued in August of 19.
12: Okay. My concern is that this is a lot of money. And needless to say, there was $183 million that was written off, which is a lot of money. There's a lot to go forward with. So, you know, I personally have a view that today is the first day of the rest of our lives. And... So the question is, going forward, and there's a lot of money to be spent yet, what are the lessons learned? You you always want to put things on a lessons learned list because otherwise you're going to repeat them again and again. If we were to sit here today, and we are, what would you do differently? And what is it that you disagree with in terms of going forward, if anything, so that we have some understanding of where things are gonna go from now forward? Is that a fair question?
10: Yeah, I think with the, um, with the previous contract, um, you know we did recognize that um, that project very unique and it was important to understand what issues caused that uh, project to fail.
12: I've been through this one before and I was on the 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 two people who knew the most on the airport advisory board at the time had nothing to do with the procurement and my view was that that whole thing was a mess from day one. I mean it, it just a big mess so it was a case of fixing it at this point as far as you guys are concerned
10: so I think yeah. the you know the um, the need to quickly move um, for all the, the reasons that Michael stated um, dictated the the contractor pool that was engaged uh, the proposals that were received I'm not sure I would do things differently moving forward Um, from that standpoint um, for both, you know, the safety of our passengers, for the um, protection of our facilities. So um, I'm not sure that I would do things differently. But again, that's extremely unique situation. I'm not sure until you're put into that situation, you know, what actions you'd take.
3: Yes. Um, I think the the issue that we found is one the cause which they were given the directive that's what was told to us don't document we understand that it was compressed procurement so when we were doing our testing we removed some of the steps like advertising right because we knew they had to work fast but we're talking 2.1 billion spent and there's not one iota of documentation that we can see that that was given to Hensel Phelps and they were deserving of it that's what led to this recommendation we're saying hey these these say on page one your SOPs they're designed for fair transparent process great you've done it for every project since in his response he just said it there there's a reason they're following them now there was a reason they bypassed those and we're saying with this recommendation you need to come up with a policy that you don't do that moving forward because it's dangerous there's no transparency we can't look at any kind of score sheets, we don't know. And one thing that causes question is there's three bidders. Hensel Phelps was the highest, right, $9.1 million. Um, I know cost isn't the only thing you focused on is qualifications, too. But to me, as not only an auditor, but people that use the airport, right, like that's just it seems egregious that there's no documentation.
12: What's your response to, to what Patrick said? I thought that was... Thank you, Patrick. I thought you did a
3: really good job
12: of synthesizing synthesizing this thing.
20: My response throughout has been, please speak to our committee members. They're all still available. Few are still with the city. Some are still within the aviation industry and can be reached. It, It did go to a panel. It then went to all the airlines and got their support. It then came through the mayor and city council and was approved. So... The one thing I do want to clarify, though, we weren't trying to hide documentation in any shape or manner. What we were trying to be sensitive to is we were looking at a potential litigation with a former developer with the same subcontractors and subconsultant designers wrapped up in that, that we are trying to engage moving forward. It's a very cumbersome, delicate situation, and again, They're all local companies, so we wanted them engaged moving forward and ensuring as we were moving forward with our new partner, which had to be transparent and collaborative with us, which they have been throughout, that they were bringing everything to us so that we can ensure we weren't overpaying for something in the past. It's a very unique situation, and we had many eyes as part of that
3: on it.
12: Patrick, what do you, what well, do you say? Well, listening
3: to that sounds like a long <laughs> process. I don't know how you can go through that mm-hmm. exercise and not have documentation generated. I don't know how. Um, I, don't, I mean, I don't want to go back and forth. We've talked through this. I, I just think it's alarming, the directive, and there's no, no support to substantiate why they went with who they went.
7: Yeah, one philosophy is if it isn't documented, it didn't happen. So, June?
0: Thank you. Our third sub-finding begins on page 17 of the report. The airport lacks policies and procedures to manage projects that use the construction manager general contractor delivery method. We found the airport's special projects division does not have a standardized approach for managing construction work that uses the construction manager general contractor delivery method. As discussed on page 17 of the report, in the absence of consistent practices, airport staff involved in these types of projects have had to develop their own procedures for performing management and oversight duties. This increases the risks for inconsistencies in the division's project management. For example, staff might misapply key oversight steps or overlook them entirely. The airport does have a handbook for the Great Hall project, which provides a general framework for project management but this handbook does not include the level of detail as a defined set of policies and procedures. The airport agrees policies and procedures should be in place to provide more structure and consistency. (coughs) Recommendation 1.4 on page 19 of the report says, the airport special projects division should develop and implement policies and procedures addressing the unique risks of the construction manager general contractor delivery method. These policies and procedures should align with leading practices and detail the steps required to effectively manage such projects, beginning with the initial scoping of the project all the way through project completion. The agency agreed with this recommendation with the implementation date of December 1, 2023. I would now like to open the floor for any questions and comments from the agency and audit committee members.
7: Any comments from the airport?
20: I'll just note that we are committed to strengthening our procedures and our documentation as part of this process. I think that's an underlining finding is through this whole process that really applies to everything that we are very committed to.
7: Thank you.
0: Uh, Katie will present our next sub
5: All right, Katie. Thank you, June. Subfinding 4 on the bottom of page 19 found that the airport did not properly oversee the contractor's subcontracting process. We found seven main issues related to the airport's oversight of Hensel Phelps' subcontracting process. Starting on page 21 of the report, airport officials took 33 days to, up, to provide copies of the subcontracts requested. Once received, additional requests had to be made as not all subcontracts were originally provided this led us to conclude airport officials did not have copies readily available and may not have had full knowledge of all phase two subcontracts leading practices stress that project owners in this case the airport should have copies of all subcontracts from their contractor to review details and to ensure they are receiving the best value possible continuing on page 22 according to the contract conditions each subcontractor that Hensel Phelps expects to perform work must be accepted in writing by airport management before that work begins out of the 34 phase 2 subcontracts examined only 11 had undergone a review and approval process in writing by airport management the remaining subcontracts were discussed verbally during meetings but there was no formal written documentation or signed approvals provided according to contract terms subcontracted work shall be procured based upon competitive bids which are awarded to the lowest responsive and most qualified bidder Additionally, leading practices recommend obtaining a minimum of three bids for each construction trade. And if that is not possible, there should be documentation as to why. We found 20 of the 34 trades examined were either not competitively bid or received less than the recommended three bids. Airport management stated cost estimates were used on trades not competitively bid. The ability to conduct a fair assessment of cost is limited in situations where only one or two bids are received for a given trade. Out of these 20 trades, five were not competitively bid, only one of which had received written approval as required by the contract. Continuing on page 23, we found that some subcontracted trades may not have been awarded to the lowest, most qualified bidder. Without sufficient documentation explaining the selection of a higher cost bid over a lower cost bid, it was difficult for us to determine if the airport is receiving optimal value on six trades. When we reviewed the winning bids awarded to Hensel-Phelps to subcontractors, we found three subcontracts exceeded bid amounts, as shown in Table 1 on page 24 of the report. This amounted to over $1 million across three subcontracts. Because cost is a major factor used in the selection process, there is a risk the airport could be overpaying. Also on page 24 of the report, we found several of the subcontractors authorized to begin work did not have executed contracts in place at the time the task order was signed and issued by the airport. This places a risk that subcontractors were on-site and working without a signed agreement. Lastly, on page 25, we found unallowable markups on multi-tiered subcontracted work. The airport paid more than it should have on certain subcontracted work because airport staff did not ensure correct calculations on allowable markup costs for multi-tiered subcontracted work for both phases. Neither the airport nor Hensel Phelps were able to readily identify which subcontractors were multi-tiered. The contract allows first-tiered subcontractors to charge a 3% markup on the actual cost of work given to the second-tier subcontractor, a supervisory fee. The second tier subcontractor can then charge a 12% markup on the actual cost of work as their own profit. The contract makes it clear that there can be no layering of markups and the total markup of of all tiered subcontracts cannot exceed 15%. We found that not only was Hensel Phelps incorrectly calculating and charging the airport for such multi-tiered subcontracted work, but Hensel Phelps also exceeded the 15% limit by layering these markups. We used our professional judgment to select a sample of seven subcontractors that had multiple tiers of work and found all but one, or 86%, had layered markups charges on top of each other. This incorrect layering of markup charges caused the total markup to exceed the contract's 15% cap. In the end, we could not determine the extent of the incorrect markups without Hensel Phelps doing significant work to identify all subcontractors in phase one and two that were multi-tiered. However, based on our sample, identifying 86% of multi-tiered work as having incorrect layering, and because of the magnitude of the more than $200 million in subcontracted work for phase one and two, the total amount the airport was overcharged for these incorrect markups could be significant. This brings us to recommendation 1.5 and 1.6. On page 27 of the audit report, recommendation 1.5 states, airport special division should oversee the awarding of subcontracted work to ensure the terms of the construction manager general contractor contracts are adhered to. Specifically, the division should develop and implement policies and procedures to ensure subcontracted work is awarded in a fair and reasonable way and to the greatest extent possible is based on open competition. At a minimum, the division should obtain and review all bid packages submitted by prospective subcontractors to ensure that at least three bids for each trade are received, and if not, that the contractor makes an effort to rebid or to document why three bids were not received, that the lowest responsive and most qualified bidder is selected, and if not, document the justification as to why, to document the review and approval process for all bid packages for subcontractors chosen by the contractor, and to obtain and review all subcontracts the contractor entered into to ensure proper oversight. The airport disagreed with this recommendation. See auditor's addendum on page 64 for our full response. Recommendation 1.6 on page 28 of the audit report states, Denver International Airport Special Projects Division should increase its oversight of multi-tiered subcontracted work to ensure markups are calculated in accordance with contract terms. Specific to the current Great Hall Project, the division should obtain information on all subcontracted work done during during phases 1 and 2 that use multi-tiers of contractors. The division should also recalculate the markup charges and seek credit for any amount the airport was overcharged. The airport disagreed with this recommendation. See auditor's addendum on page 66 for our full response. I would now like to open the floor for any comments from the agency or audit committee members.
7: Um, Would the airport want to explain their disagreement?
10: Let me just uh, start with something in general. I think the uh, the assumption when you read the report um, is the um, timing of delivering documents. Um, it was um, inferred that that was a lack of control of the um, contract and I would disagree with that. Um, I think you know at the time when the audit uh, began, there was a, quite a large list of documents that were requested. Um, the Great Hall was at a very critical place where we were trying to move all of the airlines from the north end of the project for their ticketing and check-in to the south end, which really is critical path work to being able to stay on schedule. We understand you know the importance of the audit and what you um, the the service that you provide, so we wanted to make sure that we were transparent um, with the ability of our our ability to deliver documents and provided a schedule of when we would be able to provide the documents and I think that we met all of those so I just wanted to state that that we disagree with that assumption that the uh, delivery of documents um, equaled uh, a lack of control of the the uh, contract but do you want to jump in on anything specific
20: The one thing I would note to this finding is we agree, as I've noted, strengthening our documentation and our processes. Where we felt this finding went too far is we're never going to override our general contractor, who they are, and tell them who they have to use. Then we, as the city, buy the liability with the project. Could they strengthen their recommendation and put more behind it? Yes. But we're not there to tell them who they have to work with they send us a recommendation and we review it, whether or not we object to it and have any concerns with it. Jack, uh, let's get to the nub of something else.
12: We, when you talk about the layering and you talk about overcharges, um, do you disagree with what the auditors found? not the processes, any of this stuff, just that there have been overcharges contrary to what the contract called for. Let's keep it very narrow if we could, please. Sure. Part of our response- Yes or no. It's very simple. You either did or you didn't. You either do agree or you don't agree. So I would appreciate a yes or no answer to that.
20: No, we disagreed. Okay, why do you disagree and
12: if you could get into discussion with the auditors. You know, we're talking about real money here and we're talking about Hensel Phelps who's still engaged. And I,
7: I I'm confused. Well, I think let's give him a chance to explain yeah. the disagreement.
20: THE GENERAL CONTRACT CONDITIONS, AND WE STATE IT IN OUR RESPONSE, ALLOW FOR THIS EXACT CIRCUMSTANCE BECAUSE ON A LARGE PROJECT LIKE THIS, WHERE YOU HAVE MULTIPLE TIER SUBS, THE 15% IS INSUFFICIENT. AND SO IT ALLOWS AN EXCEPTION WITHIN THE CONTRACT, WITHIN OUR GCs, TO ALLOW FOR AN EXCEPTION. COULD IT BE DOCUMENTED AND APPROVED BETTER? YES. What we do have, and it's common on a large infrastructure project of this size where you've got multiple tiers, the 15% doesn't go enough. Everybody in industry will tell you that. And you wonder why we only get one or two bids, insufficient bids, it's a big reason why. They're there, they have to make their money, otherwise we don't get bids. So we're trying to get people to the table I do want to note this team led by this contractor to date, we've done 548 outreach events, getting the contracting community engaged at the table as part of this project. And we still at times will only get one, two bids and sometimes none.
5: We found no issue with the solicitation process, but we didn't receive any evidence that the airport followed the general contract conditions by providing that justification needed by Um, approvals to exceed that 15 percent limit so it's just non-compliance with the contract
20: again I would I would note to that point yes we could strengthen our documentation of it we recognize though it happens
3: Patrick yeah okay Um, the bottom of page 25 because we went back and forth during this 10-month audit on this topic We, we included that language because we feel like it's pretty cut and dry neither the contractor nor a sub of any tier will apply these charges that create a pyramid. They're they're stacking it, they're pyramiding, whatever term you want to use. What we saw in almost every single one we looked at was the person that did the work gets 12 percent, the person that supervised that work gets three. They're adding three on top of the 12 percent. So you're stacking the rates. I don't know how, why there's such a gray area there. Um, We ran it by the city council. I mean city attorney, right, we're not saying that's a legal opinion, we just want to say, hey, are we reading this right or do you think we're crazy? She said, no, that's how I would interpret it. Doesn't mean that that's legal opinion, but um, on top of that, the 15%, never did they tell us, hey, we gave written approval to exceed that 15%, right? And we're forgetting also on here is there's an incentive for HP to stack it like that because we're forgetting that they're adding two fees on top of that, Right for general administrative and their profit. So there's a lot of fees that are being stacked up here. To say the airport hasn't been overcharged, I would say that's erroneous and we have hard evidence that they are. To what extent, we don't know, because HP couldn't give us all that information of, hey Pat, here's everyone that's multi-tiered. We don't know that. So the rec is like, go back and try and figure that out and maybe get that money back.
7: And they disagree.
3: And as far as the speed of documentation, like we document everything we do, right, as auditors. We asked four times in writing, do you have those subcontracts? They should be an easy forward. We even were forthright with our concern is you don't have them. That would be alarming. You can't; It's hard to oversee stuff where you have no knowledge of what's even in those. They hired a third party contractor to come in. We met with them in February. That contractor kind of looked at things that we said, we, here's the issues we found with your audit. That contractor came in, and his words, used kick the tires a little bit. One of the things he said that resonated with our audit team was, the speed at which document can be produced, fill audit requests um, by the owner, airports the owner in this project, is indicative of how tightly controlled that, that project is. We put that in our addendum. Those were his words. And we're like, bingo, that's exactly how we feel. Um, to, we asked you multiple times, so to say that, hey, you just gave us a big laundry list of requests and we couldn't get to it because that subcontracting piece was at the bottom. When we ask you three more times and our concern is you don't have them, we were hoping you would bump that item up. So we've gone through a long list of excuses on this audit, and I just think the hard evidence we have that the team found in this audit report, it's like I don't hear disagreements with the facts. We offered three occasions. You want to see not our work papers, but we'll give you details of all our deviations. Never took it up. Um, I don't know why you wouldn't want to know more details, and then maybe we're not infallible to air. We, we acknowledge that, but you didn't want to look at here's the specifics of what we found. It was just more of a, we're, we, we disagree with that. And, uh, yeah. Katie? All right.
5: All right. I will now continue on to sub-finding five, found on page 29 of the report. It found the airport did not properly oversee Hensel Phelps' process for hiring itself as a subcontractor. Airport officials were unaware subcontracts existed for Hensel Phelps' self-performed work. The, t- the audit team was told that Hensel Phelps' subcontracted work was included under the guaranteed maximum price listed in the task order. However, we found that Hensel Phelps did enter into subcontract agreements with itself for both phases. As discussed on page 30, the airport, as the project owner, should have knowledge of and copies of all subcontracts to ensure there are no additional fees or markups applied. Continuing on page 30, we found that the airport paid Hensel Phelps $242,000 more than what was authorized for subcontracted work. Hensel Phelps was subcontracted to perform $772,400 in phase one for door and hardware installation as well as rough carpentry work. However, the contractor was paid a total of $1.1 million in Phase 1, $344,000 over the contracted amount. $103,000 of that was found to be reasonably spent through project funding that was allocated to Hensel Phelps in the task order. Therefore, we found that the airport paid Hensel Phelps $242,000 for work that had not been originally subcontracted to complete. According to the American Institute of Architects, whenever costs are more or less than what is allowed, the contract sum should be adjusted through a change order. The amount of the change order should reflect the difference between actual costs and what is allowed, as well as changes in the contractor's costs. On page 32 of the report, we also found that a portion of the subcontracted work Hensel Phelps awarded itself was not procured in a fair and reasonable manner. Hensel Phelps was awarded to address gaps in work using a night crew. This work was not bid competitively nor approved in writing by airport management as required by the contract. Airport officials said the extra work was approved by way of the task order. However, we found that the task order did not expressively include the authorization for this extra work. Continuing on page 32, Hensel Phelps structured the bidding of the concrete work to its advantage, potentially reducing submission of other bids. We found that a bid package for Phase Two solicited subcontractors for concrete work that included both specialized work with vertical concrete columns and routine work with horizontal concrete. We were told by airport officials that Hensel Phelps intended to perform the vertical concrete work from the beginning due to it being a complex and high-risk job, while the horizontal work is what any concrete construction company is accustomed to performing. Only three bids for the concrete work were received in total and airport officials told us they were unsure why so few bids were received. The airport accepted Hensel Phelps concrete bid which came in $143,000 over the estimated price for the work to be completed. We found that that work was neither rebid nor negotiated to ensure the airport received the best price. Had the two types of work not been combined or if the procurement had been more fair, there may have been additional bids received with an overall better negotiated price. Therefore, grouping together the horizontal and vertical portions of the work in a single-bid package limited competition. On page 33 of the report, we found that airport management allowed Hensel Phelps to self-award itself some of the work, only to then subcontract that work out to another subcontractor. As mentioned, Hensel Phelps was self-awarded the concrete work for Phase 2, it was clear from its bidding documents that it was intending to perform the vertical portion of the work. However, it was awarded both the horizontal and vertical concrete work. We learned from the contractor that Colescape was a second tier subcontractor working to perform the horizontal concrete work that was originally awarded to Hensel Phelps. Leading practices say a contractor should not bid on self-performing the work and then subcontract that work out because the contractor could in- could increase costs and layer fees. On page 34 the- On page 34 of the report, we did not find evidence that Hensel Phelps bid for subcontracted work was submitted before other bids for phase two. We found that Hensel Phelps submitted its bid for doors and hardware installation the same day as its competitor. To ensure a fair and open competitive bidding process, Hensel Phelps bid for subcontracted work should have been submitted prior to other potential subcontractors' bids. Additionally, we found the airport did not provide a written review of pricing for this self-performed work before Hensel Phelps awarded itself the subcontract. When we asked airport officials about this, they said they did not perform the same level of review because the bid was only for $18,614. Nonetheless, the installation bid should have gone through the same written evaluation to ensure a fair and competitive bidding process as required by the primary contract. This brings us to recommendation 1.7, found on page 35 of the report, which states that Denver International Airport Special Projects Division should ensure its project managers are actively involved when any contractor awards itself subcontracted work to ensure the terms of the primary construction contract are adhered to with regards to awarding self-performed work. Specifically, project managers should ensure the work is awarded in a fair and reasonable manner and to the greatest extent possible is based on open competition. At a minimum, project managers should obtain and review all bid packages submitted by prospective subcontractors to ensure at least three bids for each trader received, and if not, the contractor makes an effort to rebid and that the lowest, responsive, and most qualified bidder is selected, that they should review all bid packages for reasonableness and approve all self-awarded work, and finally, managers should obtain and review all self-performed work agreements entered into by the contractor, So that the managers are familiar with the terms and conditions contained within them and can ensure all costs are reasonable the airport disagreed with this recommendation see auditor's addendum on page 67 for our full response i would now like to open the floor for any comments from the agency and audit committee members
7: comments on your disagreement
4: the
20: part within there which i would note we disagree is whether the statement that we get a mint, they receive a minimum of three bids, or we require them to rebid it. We will lose more money and time impact to the project because the number one driver in renovating an operating terminal is time. With our passenger traffic and our growth, if we stop them and said every time you got to go get three bids. And as you heard me state, they've had over 540 outreach mm-hmm. events to date, actually 549 because I participated one last week at the Green Valley Rec Center, where we had more than 50 subs and suppliers in a room, we would, be, we would be delaying them. So that's the part where I would say overstepping our bounds with them. They ultimately own the project, and we set milestones with delivery dates they have to hit. So we can't intervene every time and stop them when they don't get three bids. We did review this and did confirm they did not mark it up overly when they subcontracted out with coloscapes. I do think that's debatable was whether or not for the horizontal concrete work, if that was really the cleanest approach. And so we're addressing that with them. But at the end of the day, what they self-performed was the vertical concrete. As you, and as you heard stated, we see it as specialized work where we struggle getting bidders out there. And then it was doors and hardware. It was less than 7 tenths percent of the work performed on the project.
12: Jack? Well, I understand the issue about the disruption to passengers, et cetera. However, I heard a lot of other things from the auditors. Number one, that uh, specifically where The bid from Hensel Phelps did not come in earlier than the rest of them, Uh, that there was no written approval and explanation for what was done. Um, Could you possibly address the rest of the things that the auditors raised? In other words, if if there's a laundry list of ten items and you're addressing two, Could you possibly address the others?
20: Yes. Thank you. Yes. To the point, and this is the underlying finding, I would say, with this audit, as you've heard me say, it's on us to strengthen our processes and our documentation. So, yes, could we strengthen that process of what they self-perform and the documentation behind it? Yes, we're doing that. We agree with that.
12: But I guess... Being an outsider, you know, looking at this, it would really be helpful if you could agree in detail and disagree in detail with what the auditors have raised so that there's a record of what you agree with and what you don't. So when you talk about strengthening, the question is, everything's a matter of detail in this business. it would really be helpful if we could understand what you agree with that the auditors raised so that the strengthening can be evaluated in terms of those specific findings and recommendations. Is that, could you possibly? Do
20: that for us? Yes. I-, I feel like we did that as part of our response that we submitted. We submitted a very in-depth and we went through point by point. And as part of that, we did identify those areas where we agreed with where we feel like we can take steps to make improvements. Where it got into or we felt <coughs> like we were a bit in a conundrum was there is no partial agreement. You either agree to dress all findings or you disagree, where we are committed to strengthening the documentation, and we do note, as I noted, a very thorough response. Now, what about
12: the $240,000
20: that was raised by the
12: auditors? Do you agree with what the auditors pointed out? And if you disagree, what are the parts you disagree Um, you know $250,000 just that item alone is I don't know I think worthy of
20: we have gone back and reconciled everything with our contractor as part of this project we feel like we have closed everything and have airtight Throughout that process,
12: we have. You didn't answer my question. Can, I'd like to know about the $248,000 or 240 thousand dollars that was raised by the auditors. You either agree or you disagree. And when you talk about tightening up, I don't know what that means. I'm sorry, sir.
20: Can you remind me what's specific?
5: Uh, that Hensel Phelps uh, was awarded work outside of what they were contracted to do and that equated to the $242,000.
20: We have reviewed that work and had confirmed it. It's very common, and in fact, in my professional experience, the amount of self-performed on this work from an industry standard standpoint is substantially lower than any project I've seen. Most contractors will self-perform, especially on roadway horizontal projects, 40, 50%, 7 tenths of a percent, We have reviewed it and confirmed that work.
5: We just don't have evidence of that review other than those cost meeting agendas that weren't officially signed off on. We don't know who wrote them. They're not dated. They're handwritten. So
20: Yes, so the team holds a weekly cost control meeting with our contractor where they go through everything. And as noted, it's documented in meeting minutes. What we're looking to do is strengthen that process with official documentation from it but it was reviewed and it was confirmed
12: but you don't have documentation to that effect is that right or wrong
20: not to the level detail noted we have a team of cost estimators who went through it
12: but it's not documented it either I mean it's either documented or or it isn't so the question is is it documented or isn't it
11: Rudy the only question I have in terms of best practices, it seems like you're incorporating a lot of best practices in order to, sounds like a performance-based contract. You've got your outcomes, you're under tight de- deadlines, you finally figure it out. My only question, uh, I, and I understand you're, you know, there's more of a need to develop the policies and the procedures and the protocols, etc. My question is, why not? rewrite some of that contract to incorporate your best practices to, so that it's documented as well as reflected in the contract and moving forward. Just just your opinion on that, if, if any. Rewriting I agree with that,
20: and I felt our earlier finding to strengthen our procedures as part of a CMGC manual and oversight alludes to what you're noting. Okay. But, yeah, but what I do a, agree with you on
11: and, that. And, and the project manager, they're working very closely with Hensel and Phelps?
20: Yes, we're co-located okay. with the designer also.
7: Thank you. Patrick, do you have anything to add?
3: I just think the big issue here is, is you've used words like they could, we don't want to control that process, that's HP's. We're not saying that. Page 20 is we understand that, but you need to oversee it. And why that's so important, like what Carl brought up during the background, is with these CMGCs, these GMPs, you don't say, hey, hey Ensel Phelps, here's what I need you to do, and here's let's agree on a lump sum. Hensel Phelps is at the table with you. They're helping you determine that GMP. So there's a huge incentive, if you're not overseeing it from your perspective, that they could take advantage of you, right? They could charge more. Um, so we're not saying control the process, but we're saying you should be looking over their shoulder to make sure that they're not manipulating any of the bid, right? Subcontracting, self-perform work on this project was over 80%, biggest chunk of the project costs. It's huge. Not only that, but phase three, you're going to go through the same process again with HP, right? You're going to go through that buyout again. So if they see, hey, here's where there's no safeguards in place. Here's where we can uh, overcharge. They're going to they're know your, I guess, how you operate, and it's even more of a risk moving forward phase three that you're exposed to being overcharged you don't have to control the process but you should oversee it and there's fourteen to your point fourteen bullets of what Katie found between subcontracting and self-performed work where there's just lax controls And the comment you've made multiple times in this ten month audit is we hired the contractor to do that and I think that mentality is dangerous um, when you're dealing with a CMGC and a GMP that's not what. The literature we're seeing, best practices, is that how it should be from the owner's perspective? You're the ultimate authority on this project, not HP, you're the owner. Um, so that's our, that's the whole main crux of these two findings.
20: And just to respond to that, our authority is, is what we do, is we set milestones throughout the life of that project with liquidated damages associated with them and with an end date, because time is the most critical nature. We cannot complete this project fast enough as Carl showed in those early slides, was as quickly approaching 100 million annual passengers. Every day that goes by, it's harder to implement this project as we continue from a passenger growth. And we have 23 airlines today. We continue to grow as we look to add new carriers. That makes this project that much more challenging. So that's where, from our is we set what their requirements and goals are and set them, make them attain those. We do oversee the process. Please be clear, we do oversee it. We could document it better moving forward and make sure it's memorialized and strengthen those procedures.
7: Okay, I think we're gonna have to
9: move. Thanks. Moving on to sub finding six, beginning on page 36 of the report. The airport is not properly using construction allowances and verifying associated costs. Denver International Airport Special Projects Division is not properly validating, reconciling, and accounting for project allowances on the me, current Great Hall project, which could be costing the airport money. Project allowances are estimates used to account for construction costs that may not be fully known at the beginning of a project, such as anticipating costs for flooring, but not yet knowing the exact character, price, or level of quality that will be needed. Allowance amounts for the Great Hall project as of August 2022 were roughly $23 million. According to the American Institute of Architects, whenever the final costs are more or less than the estimated allowance, the contract's total amount should be adjusted accordingly. The amount of that adjustment reflects the difference between the actual costs and the estimated allowance. In other words, allowances should be placeholders in a contract's total amount until the contractor incurs actual costs for the work. In the example given, once the airport determined the details of the flooring it needed for the Great Hall project, Hensel Phelps would have had the flooring purchased and installed. Only then would Hensel Phelps know the actual costs and be able to compare that amount against the money set aside for the flooring allowance. Figure five on report page 36 further shows an example of how allowances function in this construction project. As explained by the American Institute of Architects and as the construction contract requires, the actual cost encouraged should be compared against the estimated allowance and adjustments should then be made to reflect the difference between actual cost and allowance. However, we found that airport staff in the Special Projects Division did not properly verify and use allowances for the current Great Hall project. Specifically, once the airport and Hensel Phelps established an allowance for a specific portion of the project, such as drywall, for example, airport staff did not later require Hensel Phelps to submit documentation that could be used to validate and reconcile the actual costs against the allowance to see what adjustments were needed. On numerous occasions, the airport moved allowance amounts that were established for one particular scope of work and transferred them to other areas of the project where an allowance was either not set up at all or where allowance was set up but was too low to cover actual costs. Because of this, the airport exposes itself to overpaying for the Great Hall project by not requiring Hensel Phelps to submit documentation that the airport could then use to validate actual costs against the amount set aside, and also transferring allowances across different scopes of work rather than what the allowance was intended for. We have two recommendations for project allowances. Recommendation 1.8, ensure staff understand how construction allowances are defined by industry standards and that they understand how allowances should be tracked, reconciled, and used. Require contractors to track and reconcile actual costs incurred and compare them against the estimated allowance amount. And require contractors to submit supporting documentation, such as vendor invoices and timesheets, to allow the airport to verify actual costs incurred. That is, that the actual costs are accurate and allowable under the terms of the contract. The airport disagrees with this recommendation. Please refer to page 69 of the auditor's addendum. I'll now pause for questions and comments. Oh, I'm sorry, I'll actually go to 1.9. In conjunction with recommendation 1.4, Denver International Airport's Special Projects Division should include in its policies and procedures specific guidance on how allowances are to be estimated and used in a construction project. At a minimum, this should include prohibiting the use of allowances for any other cost of work except for the specific scope of work an allowance was initially created for. The airport disagrees with this recommendation. <clears throat> the response is also on page 69. And at this point, I will break for questions
7: to your disagreement is there anything you want to add
10: I I think the uh, the point is you know the the allowances are set up for unknown or undefined scope and so that creates a a placeholder within the contract that uh, with den Mm -hmm. with owner approval um, we're able to use for the construction I think the point raised as far as using it for different scopes um, this is scope that the airport Is wanting to uh, construct and use the funds for you know potentially you could have had a change order to remove it from one allowance and create another allowance Um, it's all under the control of den um, for our use of that money so um,
20: correct the money that's not spent comes back to the owner we have full control for full oversight of that Specifically within the finding, the way it reads is you're saying we treat allowances as time and material. I would have to greatly increase my staff if we're going to treat every allowance as a time and material where we're collecting timesheets. We treat it as a fixed price lump sum and then we track it on a percentage done. So they've been very transparent and collaborative with us as part of this process as we're moving through this operating terminal because the one thing I can always rely on is constant is change within the operation and so that we can flex and bend to constantly minimize that disruption to the
9: passenger traffic.
7: Should we continue? Yeah.
9: Sure. Moving on to subfinding seven. Yeah. seven. <laughs> Starting on page 39 of the report, the airport did not adequately review general condition costs. General condition costs are expenses that the contractor incurs that do not directly relate to construction activities. These can include administrative costs, phone and internet service, and expenses related to training, travel, and registration fees. General conditions are a significant cost for the Great Hall project. As of August 2022, they made up about 13% of total costs, or roughly $28 million. While these costs can be billed to the airport in several different ways, the contract with Hensel Phelps bills general condition costs at a rate of 145% of each month's costs for supervisory staff, which are billed hourly. The contract details what items are allowed to be included in general condition costs. For example, these costs could be for taxes, insurance, contributions, assessments, and benefits required by law as well as reasonable data processing costs related to the project and for equipment owned by the contractor assigned to the contractor's supervisory and administrative personnel. Task orders include a range of specific categories of expenses that Hensel Phelps has included in its general condition costs. These include expenses for depreciation, business meals, and other miscellaneous expenses. While the airport agreed to these items, the broad categories and lack of a breakdown and supporting documentation for specific amounts prevent the airport from knowing whether the amounts are reasonable and permitted under its contract with Hensel Phelps. Furthermore, (coughs) although the contract details specific categories of expenses that can be billed under general condition costs, neither the airport nor Hensel Phelps were able to provide us with a detailed breakdown showing how much of each component makes up the 145%. By not having a detailed schedule of items that make up the full rate, neither we nor airport officials can confirm whether the airport paid for costs that are not allowed under its contract with Hensel Phelps. Additionally, general condition costs billed to the airport for allowable items, such as certain taxes, may be inflated. Recommendation 1.10 on page 40 of the report Denver International Airport Special Projects Division should require contractors to provide a detailed breakdown of the components that make up general condition costs on all future projects. Staff should document their review of this schedule to include allowable and unallowable items and the reasonableness of individual costs. The airport disagrees with this recommendation. Please refer to page 70 for the auditor's addendum. And This concludes our presentation on audit findings. I will now pause for any questions or comments.
7: Any comments from the airport?
20: When we received this request, we did send it to our contractor who declined to respond. Uh, My general experiences, and Jim should weigh in here, is I'm not aware of any contractor who would respond to this on a competitively procured, because we did competitively procure it up front, most of them for proprietary reasons. It's very rare, and under my experience, I haven't seen a contractor respond to this request.
10: I would agree. Part of the procurement uh, was the general conditions. Florian?
17: So I'm confused. It's 145% of what? Labor.
3: So if you make $100 an hour, they're going to bill 245. $100 an hour plus 145.
17: Of anything? Uh, 145% of all costs?
3: All staff hours that are billed to the job.
17: Okay. It's, it's just it's labor. So it's, it's, it's their overhead for benefits, yeah. Uh, yeah. Insurance, oh, ta- insurance, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm.
13: Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. So what confuses me on this one, I'm trying to get my head around it, is the contract says 145%, and I understand the airport's logic is we competitively bid and pick the general contractor. 145% is an industry standard, so I understand that. I'm confused at what's actually in the contract because it says the report says that it's 145 percent of each month's costs and then the contract details what's allowed to be included in that does the contract say that the general contractor will provide a detailed explanation because i guess i'm confused that if the contract doesn't say they have to provide it why does the contract even say what items are i mean if to me it seems like the general contractor if you agree it's 145, they can include whatever. They just get 145. So am I clear on what my question is? Yeah, I think I understand.
3: <laughs> so our perspective is the contract says they should negotiate it. So we're saying that word alone would allow you to say, hey, HP, we want to see what's baked into this 145, because the contract has a whole section that details What's allowed to be billed under general contract, right. Under general conditions? The task order has 31 bullets. It says only these 31 items are allowed to be billed as that 145. So we're saying, you have no idea if you're paying for those 31 items or 40 items? Because there's no Exactly.
13: It's not and you don't
3: know the, if they're billing for uh, continuing education of HP staff as one of those items what if they're of that 145 25% of that is for that that would be outlandish that would raise a red flag Or it's right? for
13: a, it's for a party i mean it can't, yeah. so i guess for me it, it feels like to me and i understand that the the contractor that's confidential information that's how they run their business <clears throat> they're not going to be they're not going to want to provide that then why the hell was it in the contract that's that's kind of where where i'm getting is that if the contractor says yep we're only going to use it for these things But we're not going to tell you what we're using it for why did they agree to that contract then i'm i'm all about if you've got a contract you comply with the contract Mm -hmm. if you said you're going to do something you signed it then that's what you have to do so that's that's my issue it's
10: i think the you know the contract allows for that that markup on uh the on hp's labor Um, so the list of items that are included we aren't you know as part of the contract um, requiring them to substantiate with uh, invoices for all of those items so i think you see that that list Um, hp would not be able to come to us for um, additional payment for any of those items because all of that is included in uh, their their overhead amount
3: When they competitively bid it, there was zero mention of this loaded break. So I don't know why the, that keeps coming up. It's not relevant. They had no idea what HP was going to charge for these, what percent. Neither did Turner or who was the other one? PCL. PCL. So they had no idea what that rate was going to be. Um, and the, the issue that was brought to us is HP wouldn't give us that. I mean, this is $2.1 billion. Forbes had... HP's total revenue last year at $5.5 So, like, my point being made is you guys are in a big bargaining position. If you just say, hey, we want to gain some comfort around what's in this rate and uh, the percentages to each one, if they said, no, that's a deal breaker, I think that would be a red flag. Um, So that's where we're coming from is just get comfort around what's in that rate, the items that make it up, and are those percentages reasonable for each item.
7: Okay. Okay. I guess in closing, I mean, I, I want to say I'm disappointed in your responses to the audit. I mean, you disagreed with seven out of ten recommendations. Yet, at the same time, it sounds like you agree with the facts that we've articulated in the audit report. Uh, I'm disappointed in that. I think your responses have been disingenuous at best. Um, as you're on your way to 100 million uh, passengers, there will be more projects not probably not as big as this one, maybe not as big as this one, Uh, maybe bigger, I don't know. Um, But you've stated that you feel that you oversee these contracts well. And my experience with the airport overseeing contracts has not been, I would not describe it as well at all. You know, we tried to look at the hotel. Uh, You're not overseeing the, the activities of the hotel. Certainly not the financial activities of the hotel. We looked at the shuttle bus contract. You're not overseeing that contract. We've looked at concessions. You're not overseeing those contracts. Maybe we differ on what our definition of overseeing a contract is. But um, if you have any closing remarks, I would welcome to hear them now.
10: I just like to say you know we always um, are looking for you know improving our processes procedures Um, as Michael said you know I think that the the uh, underlying um, topic on the the audit is that we can improve our documentation and um, better document our procedures and so we'll look forward to that but we always appreciate um, getting feedback so that uh, we can make improvements in areas um, so that we can Uh, you know successfully manage all the all the work that we have coming up and there is a significant amount of growth that is necessary to meet that hundred million passengers so so we appreciate that
7: okay any other questions from the committee our next item general business there'll be a meeting here in the Par widener room on May 18th at 9 a.m. with that I believe we're concluded thank you very much
6: here. Um, I have about 10 of them maybe 12 eucalyptus made Um, and then you want to take your big kind of like hemp wire and you can get this at like any craft store. I got it at Hobby Lobby. I believe they also have it at Joanne's Fabrics and um, and Michael's. You might even be able to find it at Walmart. So um, this is three and a half feet. It seems pretty long. It seems longer than you would want for a flower crown, but it is actually what you want because you're gonna double wrap it. So it is kind of in a circle. So you're gonna have like it, let's be like straight and you're gonna kind of put them together like a circle and then bring them around until they kind of touch. That's about how big you want your circle to be. And then what you do is you're gonna hold where the opposite end is, so where opposite of where the two pieces are, like flinging about, and then you're gonna just wrap. So you're gonna wrap them in around each other. And this is just gonna make it so that it's sturdier. Plus it kind of gives it like a cute little braid. There is multiple colors of this hemp stuff. Um, There is like a more hay colored one. This one is more green. I preferred getting the green one um, specifically so that you won't be able to see the green wire as much. Um, But if that's not something that you care about or worried about,